Orton in the gun. Buckalter right next to him. Orton pumps again to the sideline. Batted up. Oh, God! Stokely down the sideline! Can they catch him? Stokely! Wow! Touchdown! Denver! Unbelievable! Oh, my goodness! What a play! And welcome to the Sportscasters episode number 19. It is May 10th, 2011 here in beautiful Buffalo, New York. We finally have cracked the 60s, it seems like, on a (laughs) daily basis here. Thank God. In uh, the middle of May, but we will only believe it while we see it. I would not doubt. I have not yet put my scraper away. For no, the ice. no, mine's, never. Mine's gone. Yours is gone. But huh? I think I've needed it once when it was gone already. You're a gutsy guy. Well, yeah. it is May 10th, just a couple days after Mother's Day, and we're going to get to that in a second. But in the meantime, we kind of got a bunch of stuff to go over here before we get going with three things. First, we have to say hello to a really good friend. His name is Josh Cormier, and uh, he's a good friend of mine, and he actually used to work for the Buffalo Bills. And he is going to join us on the podcast in a couple of weeks to talk about his experiences with the Bills. He was actually standing right next to Wade Phillips on the field holding Wade's wires or clipboard or whatever as the Tennessee Titans pulled off the Music City Miracle. And that cost him, you know, this is something you don't really think of, but he would have gotten a full share, a full winner's share after the Super Bowl, which would have been about 200 grand. Ooh. And that's two hundred grand for a normal man that he'd never seen again, and he was rudely fired uh, by uh, who was the guy from Pittsburgh that came in? Donahoe. Donahoe. He was rudely fired by uh, Donahoe, and the reason I bring Josh up today, as opposed to the day that he's going to be on the podcast, which is in a couple weeks, uh, we're going to talk to him, is because he is actually training right now uh, to run a marathon. Um, uh, it's called the 2011 Kidney Walk. Uh, the na- it's a part of the National Kidney Foundation. And uh, he's running it in honor of his dad, who was a really great guy. I knew him really well. He passed away this year. A huge, huge Notre Dame fan. Uh, he loved his family. He loved Notre Dame. He was a really great guy. Always nice to everyone. But he always had health problems. He's one of those guys that was always sick. And it's actually uh, the marathon is in South Bend, Indiana. It ends on the field at Notre Dame, and he's doing it for his dad. He's trying to reach $1,000. He's raised $480 already. Uh, if you can check him out, it's it's too hard to give you the address to his direct page, but if you follow him on Facebook, his name is Josh Cormier, and uh, he's from Buffalo, New York. The way he spells his last name is C-O-R-M-I-E-R. And if you go to his Facebook, there is a link, or you can follow him on Twitter. And uh, I'm not sure what his Twitter is, but that's Don's job while I go through all this other stuff to figure out. Also, uh, we got to give a shout-out to a new listener, uh, a really good uh, friend of mine. I've known him since he was a little boy, uh, my girlfriend who sometimes greets us near the end of the podcast in the uh, remix to a remix that we play before pick four. Her little cousin, Dan, his name is Dan Verrill. Um, he's a great sports fan, really, really, really smart kid. Wouldn't be shocked if he's valedictorian. He's going to be a sophomore, I believe, next year in high school. So he's finishing his freshman year, and uh, he's probably going to be on the varsity team next year. 
and uh, really good sports fan. Loves the Giants. Loves Eli Manning. And uh, I just wanted to say hi to him because he's been listening to us, Don, and he said that he really likes it, especially me. He's not a big fan of you. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's not true. Uh, Josh Cormier's Twitter account is at BuffaloJC34. Yeah, so if you follow him there, he will tweet out all the details about his run. And if you could donate five bucks, two bucks, three bucks, we never asked for anything like that before, but this is for a great cause. It's for the National Kidney Foundation. I know it's something that's really important to Josh, so look into that if you can. And Dan, thanks for watching, buddy. Dan's a good kid, and uh, we'll keep you updated on his... uh, Varsity football, and who knows? Maybe we'll have to have Dan on for three things sometimes. Sure, he's kind of quiet. He's kind of a quiet kid. He says he says sure a lot. Does it or not? Yeah, he's nice. known for saying the word sure. <laughs> uh, we even joked once that his uh, valedictorian speech would be sure. It was great. Sounds good. Okay, before we get started for our three things. Oh, one other thing. Next week is episode twenty, and uh, one thing that we're going to do very special for episode twenty is talk to our good buddy Dave. Uh, Dave Damashek, we love him, and we wanted to mention that if you go to NFL.com and you click around a little bit, and the first thing you have to click is blogs slash news, I believe, you will eventually find his new podcast uh, on NFL.com. So their first podcast they launched was Rich Eisen, who I think does one or two a week, and uh, now the Dave's going to start doing his hooey and applesauce over there, so make sure you check that out. Now, Don, you got Skype open. I... Do not. Okay, we'll get that open. Okay. Because what we're going to do, just uh, real quickly and uh, real sweetly. We're doing this cold. And we're going to do it cold. We're going to see how it works, although we could probably edit it later if it's a big bomb. That's true. <laughs> uh, but we're going to try to call our mothers and uh, formally wish them a happy Mother's Day. So let's try mine first. You ready? No. No. Don's not ready. Don's dropping the ball here. Perpetual ball dropper. Uh, I should say what we have coming up later in this show. I mentioned last week that Wes Bunting uh, is going well, – we were hoping that we might be able to get him to come back and talk about his his grades. He graded each team's draft, and uh, we were hoping to get him back to talk to us about that, and that worked out. So Wes Bunting is going to be on the show uh, a little bit later. And also – we're going to call it at work, Don – and also, we have Jason Lacknafora from the NFL Network, who is going to join us for the first time, and everyone's favorite guest, including my mom's. Anthony. No. <laughs> uh, Zach Rosenfield is going to be on the show. Everyone so are we ready? Say. We're going to try this? We're going to try calling. We're Mom- trying to call my Mama mom Caster. first. Uh, let's see how this goes. At Mama Caster on Twitter. She's fabulous. <laughs> Her tweets are exhilarating. Let's see how this works. Good evening, Danny South. Can I help you? Yeah, can I see Lois, please? Sure, hold on. Thank you. It's a free plug for Danny's there. Yeah, Danny's. Danny South in Buffalo. Good show. Right across soup. from the Rich Stadium, or <laughs> Ralph Wilson Stadium now, as a call. Hello? Mom? Yeah? This is Steve. What's up, Steve? You are on the podcast. I am? You are. And the reason you are on is because since Why, it is... <laughs> It's a slow night on the podcast? Actually, it's a very, very, very busy night. We have uh, Wes Bunting and Jason Lacknafora and Zach Rosenfield, your buddy Zach. But the reason we're calling is because we wanted to call our moms and tell them how much we love them and wish them a happy Mother's Day on the show. So I love you. Happy oh, Mother's Day. You. Oh, you're welcome. Happy Mother's Day. Is there anything you want to say guys. to uh, the listeners of the Sportscasters? Thank you, guys. Love you, guys. Okay, we love you, too. Is there anything you want to say to our listeners? 
Hi, listeners. Keep listening. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. We'll... Stars, you're listening to. Okay. Okay, we love you. We'll talk to you soon. Okay. All right. Take care, guys. Yep. Bye. Right, bye. All right, one for one. That worked out pretty good. Okay, here's the. This will be the tricky one. All right, <laughs> this is on you. I'm gonna let you go here. All right. Don's dialing right now. Hey, you think I know my mom's phone number? Here we go. My dad's a listener. I'm not sure about my mom. <laughs> Bill's always listening, commenting, liking. Mom, right now, she's looking for her purse. What's this number? I don't know this number. Hello? Hello? Mom? Yeah? Hey, that's Donnie. What's up? Hey, you're on the podcast right now. Uh, we're calling our moms to wish them a uh, happy belated Mother's Day and tell them we love them. So there it is. <laughs> No yep. problem. Do you want to say anything to uh, Steve or the podcast listeners? Hi, Steve. Hi, how are you doing? Uh, happy Mother's Day. Oh, thank you. Yep. What did Donnie get you for Mother's Day? <laughs> I let her wait on me at her restaurant. Oh, that was very kind of you. <laughs> yeah, I had to work, so they came and they visited me at work when I was done. That was very nice. Yeah, my mom always works, so we have a thing called Mother's Day Monday. We went to Outback yesterday. Yeah, mom's got an IOU. Yeah. So yeah. is there anything else you want to say to the listeners of the podcast, the millions? I don't think so. Okay. Have a good one. All right. Bye-bye, guys. Bye. Bye-bye. All right. Oh, that was fun. That one yeah, pretty that good. that was good. We won't even have to do much editing after the fact. No, not much. <laughs> All right. All right, three things. Let's play a game. All right. Count of three. One. Alrighty. I'll take it off. Two. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. Three. I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback. <laughs> this is the funnest night ever. <laughs> Did we just become best friends? Yep. Now let's move on to other business. Alrighty. You spoke of someone who was soft-spoken. Uh, my first thing has to do with someone who is decidedly not. <laughs> we opened with a Gus Johnson highlight from week one. Uh, two seasons ago. Yeah, two seasons ago. Broncos. Yep. Bengals. Bengals, that's right. Yep. It effectively ended the Bengals season before it started. Uh, Gus Johnson no longer will be doing AFC games, apparently. No. Nope. He'll be moving to the NFC and Fox. Yes. And if uh, you follow a uh, friend of the podcast, Richard Deitch, on Twitter or read his column on SI.com, he's been talking all about this. So uh, as a Bills fan, and it, we're probably not going to see much of Gus because he's probably going to be on one of the top top squads there in the NFC. So he'll be missed. His excitement will be missed in the AFC. But as a Saints fan, I'm very excited <laughs> about the move because I am a fan of Gus. I think he, I think he's, he adds something to the game. And, you know, one thing I think is kind of unfair is sometimes people act like he yells and screams the whole game. He really doesn't. It's just those big moments that he chooses to use the style that he does. And I think that if he was screaming and yelling the whole time, it wouldn't have as much credibility. And I know uh, Jonah Carey on his podcast had Sean McDonough from uh, Boston, New York. Uh, and he... Boston, 
Boston, New York. Boston, Massachusetts. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> they both kind of discussed uh, that his style, it, it's fun, you know, and, and I like him. So I can't wait to. Yeah, it's almost, like listen, to it's almost like listening to, no matter what game you're watching, it's like listening to the hometown announcer. He gets just as excited for the Jets or the. Yeah, it's a good uh, point. The big teams as he would for the Bills or the Broncos as it was in the open. Yeah, it's almost like he's a uh, a perpetual radio homer. Right, right. You know, because you always expect the radio broadcast to be a somewhat homer. And and it's, it's cool because Sirius XM, whenever they, uh, when they air the games, they usually air either side. You can usually listen to either side. And it's always the same, you know, uh, the Vikings that... F- Guys are homers. Remember, they famously were screaming at Brett Favre. Right, right. When he threw that. No, <laughs> this isn't Detroit. This is for the Super Bowl. <laughs> and uh, you know, so yeah, Gus is cool. Yeah, he's fun. All right. Last week, I mentioned that the NHL playoffs can sometimes make a super a star out of uh, just a regular player, and uh, we mentioned James Van Van Riensdyk and how he's kind of emerged as a star this year in the playoffs. Well, you know what else the playoffs can do is it can turn a star into an all-time great or into a superstar uh, for all the world, for all times. And I think Pavel Datsuk, if he wasn't already this year, is really turning himself in to be one of the all-time great players. And I think it's, I think I, I'm ready to say he's the greatest Russian hockey player since Russian hockey players uh, started playing in the NHL. I, I don't know about anyone that was on the famous 1980 team or right, uh, right. any of the Russians that never made it over to play in the NHL in their prime. But, but I, it's a pain you to say that because of your love for Burry. Yeah, and I love Pavel Burry just as much as probably anybody. But, you know, that's who, and it's funny because earlier in his career, he wasn't any good in the playoffs at all. In the 0-2-0-3 season, he played four games. He had no points. They so got swept out of the playoffs. The following year, they played 12 games. He had six assists. He had no goals. Uh, in 2005-2006, he had no goals and three assists in a five-game exit. But then something must have clicked for him. And uh, the following years, in 06-07, uh, he had eight goals and eight assists uh, for 16 points in 18 games. Uh, the year after that, in a Stanley Cup championship season he had 10 goals and 13 assists for 23 points that season in the regular season he was also a plus 41 yeah. and won the uh frank Selke. j Salki trophy for uh, best defensive forward uh let's see what else last season he had 13 points in 12 playoff games and today or last night he had three assists with one hand basically <laughs> uh his team needed him their backups against the wall down three to one he had three assists in the three in, in the third period and so far in nine playoff games he has 13 points pavel datsuk you are a stud you are a superstar and my hat's off to you yeah you have a hard time finding a more entertaining player to watch too i always call him the barry sanders of hockey yeah my second uh thing this week NHL free agency doesn't open until July 1st, uh, but as a Sabres fan, we already touched a little bit on free agency. Beyond uh, Brad Richards, we talked about how it's a relatively weak, unrestricted free agency class, but it might be one of the best restricted free agency class in recent memory. You've got two top five defensemen in uh, Doughty and uh, Shea Weber. You have maybe one of the top three forwards in the NHL in uh, Stamkos. And it made me wonder, I know, I, I know it's hard to prove collusion, but if you are the agents of these players or of any players and, none of, 
if Steve Stamkos goes hits the market on July first as a restricted free agent and doesn't get an offer sheet, I think the the agents and the players' union has a decent case for collusion. Yeah, well, I think there's for whatever reason there's like an untold rule that you're right. not supposed to tender. But isn't other that collusion? Like that's like the definition of. of collusion. And I don't understand why. I mean, why not? You know, why not use it as strategy? Right. I, Dustin Penner was the only post lockout. Uh, Offer sheet that was accepted. Right. The other one was Thomas Vanek, right? Well, I mean, Vanek was tendered one, but it was matched. I mean, the right. only one that wasn't matched was Penner. Okay. Bacchus was sent one. Bernier was sent one, surprisingly, in 2008. And Nicholas Harmelson, I'm probably saying that wrong, but was sent one last year by the Sharks. But that said, those are kind of character guys. And really, though, Stamkos, I mean, that might be the Sidney Crosby of the Lightning so if people could get if you can get him for four first round picks, I think any team in the league would do it. So it'd be a little bit surprising that they wouldn't, well, unless teams are just that afraid of what comes of those first round picks. Well, you know that draft that we famously talk about that you mentioned a minute ago. Well, you could have been the Rangers and drafted Hugh Jessman. Right. No matter what, draft picks aren't a sure thing. No, right. The Sabres have really struggled with the first overall picks in the last 10 years. I mean, they've had a couple of good ones, but they've also had... Andrew Peters. Daniel, Daniel Pye. was a first-round pick, maybe. Andrew uh, Peters. Uh, who was the guy that... Drew Stafford never was, made it at all. He finally kind of came along this year, but... I can't think of the... Uh, there's the a Russian guy kid that went to yeah he played he in Rochester. Never panned out. Yeah, I can't remember his name. So either. why not? I mean, draft picks are an unknown thing. So it'll be interesting uh, if any of those three, those are huge names. If any of those three guys are out on the market, it'd be interesting to see if teams don't try to poach them. All right, my second thing, Reggie Bush, go away. (laughs) We don't need you. We don't want you. And you're a jerk. 40 of the New Orleans Saints, including five players who were not under contract, joined Drew Brees at Tulane University to work out last week. Uh, They did some drills. They had some fun, you know. And they, they made themselves that much better than every other team who, unfortunately, is in the same predicament they are, locked out. But Drew Brees, being the leader that he is, he got everyone to join them. Well, Reggie Bush had this to say about the lockout. Every, quote, everyone complaining about the lockout, shoot, I'm making the most of it. Vacation, rest, relaxing, appearances here and there, I'm good. Right about now, we would be slaving 100-degree heat practicing twice a day while putting our bodies at risk for nothing. Yeah, okay, for nothing, right. Right, practice isn't important. He should be Alan out there. Iverson. He should be out there uh, fielding punts. And the thing that annoys me about this tweet is the timing of it is horrific. To send it the same week that the leader of your team, the captain, right, right. has organized 40 players to get together and work out. And by the way, as far as I know, nobody was hurt. You know, I don't think <laughs> anyone was putting their bodies at risk. I don't think there was any uh, gauntlet drills or hard hitting or anything like that. And like you said, sure, Reggie Bush could have seen if he can catch some punts that don't <laughs> bounce off his face and onto the ground. I mean, he broke his leg last year because he can't feel the punt. But he... He's gone, right? Oh, he's, he's got to be. I mean, so... How could you bring him back now? And, you know, Drew Brees reached out to him after the draft and, I guess, sent him a few text messages and decided to say, hey, we still love you. We still want you to be part of the team. And doesn't Reggie Bush remember that the best season of his career was his rookie year when Deuce McAllister was there to eat up all the yards in the middle right. and open up all that space on the outside for him? Doesn't he recall that? I mean, why, what team in the NFL doesn't have two, three running backs on the roster? Yep. Why does Mark Ingram hurt Reggie Bush? You know what? 
go away. We're not going to pay you $11 million anyway. You're a jerk. You're overrated. You weren't worth the pick. Uh, Charlie Cassidy was right. Mario Williams is a much better player than you. Go away. Wikipedia is an interesting uh, source of knowledge. It's huge. It's vast. You can find stuff about anything. Unfortunately, it's also anybody can edit it. And uh, Brian Boucher, after a loss, which has since been taken down, I checked, but someone out in the Internet universe took a screenshot of it, an edit made to his article. It says, Brian Boucher from Wikipedia. Brian Boucher, pronounced Boucher, uh, born (laughs) January 2nd, 1977, is an American professional ice hockey goaltender for the Philadelphia Flyers of the National Hockey League. He is a latent homosexual who hemorrhages goals, (laughs) particularly in the playoffs. He was abused by the Boston Bruins and forced out of multiple games because he sucks. He should lock himself in his garage with his car running and put the Flyer fans out of their misery. Ideally, Christopher Stieg would be in the vehicle as well. Wow. (laughs) Some Flyer fan uh, apparently deemed it necessary to edit Brian Boucher's Wikipedia. And while I don't agree with the statements, they are pretty funny, I guess. That had to be the same guy that organized the booing of Santa Claus. (laughs) You know, it's interesting, too, because it's interesting that they chose to use hateful words like homosexual. Because there's actually been a little bit of a story, I don't know if you've heard it, Yes. where Sean Avery has come out and in support of gay marriage. He didn't come out of the closet himself. He just said that he supports you know, marriage for all people. And uh, one of the agents on Twitter actually wrote back that he was disappointed for him to say such a thing and yada, yada, yada. But yeah, that's pretty funny. Poor Brian Boucher. <laughs> He did his best. Yeah, he's. I mean, it, he's just, just, it's, it's, you're asking too much of the guy. He, he's a weird guy because, like, some of the. If you posted some career highlights of him, they're, like, unmatched. Like, he has, like, a four game shutout streak, which is ridiculous. Uh, he just. He's got all these great stats for a guy who's really been an average to below average goalie for his career. Yeah, that's too bad. Well, speaking of f- fighting, my third thing Bill Simmons and. Keith Oberman, who have fought before on Twitter, went at it again this week. If you don't know, Bill Simmons started it with this tweet. The Kobe, the Kobe era just made the turn at Daily Plaza and passed the book depository. Oh, I did see that, yeah. Okay, so basically Simmons is saying that... It's over. It's over. Yeah. And, uh, like, you know, JFK's presidency was over when he made that turn. Right. Uh, and I guess Keith Oberman took a poor. It said it was in poor taste and got all Bill Simmons' case. And Bill Simmons thought it was somewhat ironic because Keith Oberman has been known as a guy who's made some comments that were in poor taste. Right. And uh, these two guys went at it on Twitter, and I, I just can't help but think, you know, you guys both have like a million Twitter followers. You make a ton of money doing what you do. It just, it just doesn't. It something seems off. On this, you know, and if <laughs> if you go to a sports website called www.sportsgrid.com, uh, they have an art- article about it, and uh, the Onion, I guess, took some shots at these guys and uh, and and uh, made a video. But yeah, you know, I mean, whatever. You really that offended because someone made a joke about JFK? JFK? Yeah, too, s- too soon? I mean, yeah, I mean that happened in 1963. I I know that they recently aired a Kennedy's eight piece. Uh, 
what was stamps? it? Stamps? I don't know. No, it was a <laughs> series on oh, okay. True TV, which no one had heard of ahead of time. Right. But calm down. You know, what a silly fight. You two guys, you two guys are rich and you have a lot of followers and you're a lot of fun. Don't don't fight like little girls. It's embarrassing. Before we move on, I, I it would be a, a disservice if I didn't mention that Reggie Bush did go on to say that he was only joking. Yeah, sure. <laughs> a hilarious joke. Which is the uh, number one go-to Twitter cop-out. Just like Maurice Jones-Drew is joking when he questioned the toughness of Jay Cutler. Right, right. Just kidding. And just like every time someone puts their foot in their mouth on Twitter, yep. they were kidding. J- JK. Yep, just kidding. Yeah, sure, you're kidding. All right, that's it for three things. We have a busy show. Like I said, Wes Bunting is going to join us. Zach Rosenfield is going to join us, and when we come back, we will be joined by Jason Lacknafora. Our next guest is making his first appearance on the Sportscasters, and one of the most established guests to date. He began his career covering the Detroit Red Wings as beat writer for the Detroit Free Press. Next, he spent 10 years in Washington covering the Redskins for the Washington Post. And finally, he replaced Adam Schefter on the NFL Network, where he serves as an NFL insider and reporter. A warm sportscaster's welcome to Jason Lockenfora. How are you doing today, Jason? I'm doing well. How are you? Oh, we're doing very well. Really excited to have you. And, uh, you know, it's interesting. I did some research here the last couple of days, knowing you're going to be on and and found out some of the cool stuff you've done in your career. So you used to be a beat writer for the Detroit Red Wings, huh? Do you still follow hockey? Are you a hockey fan? Are you still a I'm, Red Wings I'm fan? Watching the Wings right now. Watching the Wings <laughs> right now. Yeah, so you, I don't watch much during the regular season. I'll be honest with you. I mean, the hockey season's so long, and I'm, I'm so tied up with baseball. Uh, with baseball, with <laughs> hockey for the. I'm sorry, with football, football for the most right. part. That there isn't a whole lot of time for for baseball or hockey or soccer. Um, but yeah, the playoffs are awesome, um, and right now with the, the lockout and everything, there's there's not a whole heck of a lot going on in the NFL. Do you so have I'm definitely a, getting my hockey fix? Do you have a cool story from when you were a beat writer for the Detroit Red Wings? Uh, I mean, I, I I had a lot of fun. I mean, I was a 21, 22 year old kid when I started, so you know, being being able to crisscross the country covering the hockey team was was pretty amazing. Um, you know, a, a lot of crazy stuff happened while I was on the beat. I mean, they won back-to-back Stanley Cups. There was a terrible limousine accident after they won their yeah, first cup, in yeah. which, you know, in which case a couple of people almost died, and, and you had someone paralyzed. Uh, one of the the, the wings uh, defensemen, massage therapist. Right. Yeah, well, well, the, well, the massage therapist Sergei Manasikhanov was paralyzed from the waist down. Vladimir Konstantinov, who was arguably the greatest defenseman in the NF, in the NHL at the time. Uh, you know, he suffered some some life altering injuries that have have left him in a state where um, he basically needs constant twenty four seven attention. He isn't able to do many things for himself. And then Slava Fatisov, who was already forty plus years old at the time, uh, suffered serious injuries in that accident as well, but was able to come back the next season, about midway through the season, and actually help them win back to back cups. Um, it was a tremendous time uh, being a young kid covered scotty bowman uh <laughs> that was something else uh scotty uh scotty had plenty of fun at my expense but it was a great learning experience 
Just one more question before we move on to football. What kind of a guy sure. is Steve Eiserman? Uh, I think he's one of the most polarizing figures in the NHL. We, we see what he's doing in Tampa Bay. He's obviously a very smart hockey man. Helped Canada win a gold medal in the Olympics. What was Steve Eiserman like? You know, he, he was sort of polarizing to the media. He, he's a ridiculously intense competitor. And there's some people who it's kind of phony or it's a show or it's a put on Stevie um, just had an undeniable determination and work ethic to be the best he could be and to demand the best that could possibly be from his teammates. And sometimes that would make him a little insular or, or make him a guy who, you know, could be somewhat standoffish in the media. I loved covering him. I learned a lot from him. Um, you know, I, I, I can remember talking to him my first day on the beat and, you know, him asking me, hey, where are you living? Do you know where the grocery store is, this or that? And I was actually living in Riverfront Apartments, which is where he lived his rookie season and I think his second season in the NHL as well. It's this apartment complex literally connected to Joe Lewis Arena almost. Um, you know, I, I respect the hell out of him. And, I, you know, I, I frankly, when he went into management, I kind of wondered. Because a lot of times when star players go into management, they don't, have they don't apply that same work ethic that took them right like Michael Jordan for example part of the game to the mental part of the game exactly like a right. Dan Marino or you, you can go back and look at all these guys who kind of dabbled with it and bailed and there were some of the Red Wings front office you know who I'm still close with who were kind of like eh we'll see where this goes is he really going to want to go to Grand Rapids on a Tuesday night is he going to want to go across the river to Windsor the next night and see a junior game you know see the Spitfires right. is he going to want to go to Yost and see Michigan play Western Michigan the next night. And Stevie paid his dues, and yeah. obviously he's done tremendous things with the Lightning in his short time there. And I'm really, uh, I'm, I'm just, I'm proud to have covered him. I'm proud to have gotten to know him. Uh, he provided me with some unbelievable experiences to cover, and uh, I wish him the best. And, and I don't think it's any surprise that he gets to to Tampa Bay and that organization kind of all of a sudden. Well, I mean, they only won a cup, you know, in 2004, but obviously times have been lean there for most of their the history of their organization. I don't think it's a coincidence that, that Stevie's got them turned around so quickly. He just seems like one of those guys that just, he makes everyone better around him. Just to, just to be able to be around him, it's just got to make you better no matter what role you have. Well, he changed the whole culture there. Roman, too, now. You know, Scotty Broman got in there and was like, this guy is is not who I think he can be. And Scotty challenged him, and Scotty attacked him, and Scotty threatened to trade him to Ottawa, and Scotty <laughs> played a lot of head games with him. But Scotty got him to be a much more dominant two-way player because of it. And he inspired almost a hatred in Steve that made Steve elevate his game even more and made him into more of a leader and made him more into more of a complete hockey player. Um, and the whole organization kind of rode that crest. And I mean, I don't know that there are too many places, you know, 12, 15 years ago where guys were doing the kind of cardio workouts that Stevie was doing and the kind of plyometrics that Stevie was doing. I mean, this guy would play 22, 25 minutes in a game and then go on the bike for 40 minutes afterwards. And then it's, uh, it seemed to me that he was the first guy there doing it, and then it became the norm. And if Stevie's doing it, then you better, you better do it. Do it. Yeah. If Stevie's doing it, then the kid who just got called up from Adirondack better damn sight be doing it. And <laughs> It kind of just became the Red Wing way. That's incredible. Well, that, thank you for that. That's really cool. Uh, but our fans are going to get mad if we don't talk football with you. So let's start here. There's one thing that we haven't talked about much on the sportscasters, and that's because I think we don't understand it. 
and that's the lockout. What's going on with stays and all these strange legal things, and where does uh, it stand right now? Uh, well, uh, you know, the, the NFLPA filed their Brady versus the NFL case in a court system in Minnesota. They did that strategically, which is how anyone would want to file a federal case, which is they went to a jurisdiction that they felt like would be sympathetic to their issues. And for years, Judge David Doty, who presided over the settlement agreement from the Reggie White versus the NFL case and the Mm -hmm. subsequent collective bargaining agreement, did have domain over any issues related to the CBA. And if you look at how he ruled on a lot of things, he, he, he often did side with the players. So the PA files their lawsuit after they decertify there. They end up getting the result they thought they would get. Judge Nelson, who you know doesn't have any ties to Judge Doty other than they're in the same court system in Minnesota, she looked at the players' briefs, she looked at the league's briefs, and she decided that, uh, you know what, I'm going to go ahead and side with the players here on this issue of whether or not this lockout is illegal. She believes the lockout is illegal. She ruled that way and said the league needs to open for business. The league said, well, wait a minute, we're appealing this to the Eighth Circuit, so why don't you put your decision on hold, Judge Nelson, right. until these appellate courts get to look at it. She thought about that and said, no, I'm pretty comfortable with my decision. I wrote 90 pages on why I think you're wrong and the players are right, so go ahead and open up for business. So then the league goes to the appellate court, the Eighth Circuit Court, who they chose that court because they feel like that court much less like what the PA did. They feel like they'll have their best chance to win in that court. That court's probably a little more sympathetic to business issues. That court may lean a little more conservative than the Minnesota court. So the Minnesota court decided to look at this same decision on whether to stay Judge Nelson's ruling, which basically means put it on hold until we get a ruling from a higher court. And they, they decided did. on a temporary stay okay. uh, during the draft. They said, you know what, we'll go ahead and we will stay her decision temporarily as an administrative issue until we get a chance to look at this ourselves. It was supposed to be a, a, a matter of days. Now we're almost two weeks after that fact. They have not talked about a permanent stay. They have not ruled on a permanent stay. At this point, both sides are basically operating under the assumption that they have, in effect, granted a permanent stay already. Right. That it would be very difficult to see them reversing course now after letting this go for almost two weeks, because Judge Nelson, in her ruling, made it clear she felt like she had to not grant a stay because she felt like the players were being irreparably harmed right now in real time by the lack of free agency, by the lack of workout bonuses, by the lack of rookies being able to enter the marketplace, no contracts, no business being done. You would tend to think if the Eighth Circuit Court felt the same way, they would have made a decision on a permanent stay already, and them not doing so to a lot of people was kind of them complicitly saying, hey, you know what, we're cool with the status quo, we're going to have a hearing on June 3rd. We'll see where that goes. So, it, it really, we're in limbo. We've been in limbo for, what, a couple of months now, and we remain in limbo. Are you surprised by that? Or is this the way you pretty uh, much thought it would plan it, play out? I don't, I mean, I don't, I thought it would play out through the court system. I thought we'd ultimately end up in an appeals court no matter what, and we have. But, so I kind of guess I thought this is how we'd go from A to B, but not quite this circuitous route not with uh, institution or or, or court after court taking longer to do things than we thought or not doing things we thought they'd do. Um, This is uh, brand-new terrain. No one's ever been in a situation like this where you've got this sort of lawsuit and you've got 
uh, you know, decertification and maybe the National Labor Relations Board being involved, but then again, maybe not. I mean, this this whole thing is unprecedented. So no one knows. Legal experts don't know. Lawyers don't know. The lawyers involved directly in the case on both sides don't know. Uh, the judges themselves, I don't know if they know. Certainly the owners don't know. The players don't know. It's been a bizarre, bizarre off season. And we're, we're, we're still, you know, could be a couple months from a conclusion. You know what I don't understand is they call it a collective bargaining, agree- bargaining agreement, which means that it's, you know, usually collectively bargained by the owners and the players. Didn't it really even seem like they gave that process a chance, that it just seemed like they just immediately went to the courts? Was there just, just no way that they could have sorted this stuff out on their own? Did they well, really... They talk- I mean, they talked for 20 months, on and on again, off again. For a while, they were talking every month. They'd, they'd, the talks would break down, they'd go on hiatus for a while, then they'd come back. Um, and then obviously they had those, what, 17 or 18 straight days of federal mediation in Washington, D.C., where some progress was made and some, some movement was made and, and changes to, to both sides' proposals were made. But ultimately, yeah, the idea that they both thought they could ultimately win this thing in court, that both saw an endgame that might best behoove them or best advance their interest through that court system and that route, I think that was always in the back of everyone's mind. And once we got right up to the deadline and neither side made a deal that the other would agree to, then it became pretty clear that the union was going to go ahead and decertify and try to have that be upheld in court and use that strategically uh, to its best interest in, in terms of putting the NFL in a situation where it either had to impose rules, which would have really left it on some shaky ground in terms of potential collusion and antitrust cases, or go ahead and lock the players out, which they did. And then we reached a case where the NFL filed its claims with the National Labor Relations Board. The NFLPA filed the Brady versus the NFL lawsuit. And, you know, we've been duking it out in the court system since. Last question about this, and then we'll move on to more fun stuff like football. Um, what What I'm wondering is, so... The league put out a schedule, and I was surprised that they put out a 16-game schedule because I kind of felt like, well, does that mean they're giving up on the possibility of an 18-game schedule? And then I also heard about some conspiracies about things like week two and four could be wiped out and it would, everyone would lose the same amount of division games and home games or things like that. What do you think about the decision to release the schedule like normal? Why did they do that? Was there any surprise in the way they did it? And do you buy into any of the conspiracy theories out there about the makeup of the schedule specifically? Well, you have to release a schedule. I mean, you're, you're having people turn in season ticket money, and you're, having, you're trying to sell advertising for your games. And you've got TV partners who you have invested billions in your product. So you're putting out a schedule, and you're going to put it out about when you're normally going to put it out. 18 games is something that even in the league's last proposal to the players was tabled until 2013. So 18 games wasn't going to come into effect until 2013 at the earliest. Um, it's still up in the air whether it ever comes into play, but in 2011 I knew it would be 16 and not 18. And as to the, the, the makeup of the schedule, I don't, it's not a conspiracy theory. I mean, there's, no one can guarantee when this thing's going to start, and the league would like to build in certain... Uh, provisions where it could certain where you know it, it could go 16 weeks or 16 games but but maybe not over that the 17 weeks we're accustomed to maybe it does stay, start later than normal so how do we still protect our interest and, and maybe still build in 
buffers where we could add games on the back end and basically replace certain weeks of the schedule at later dates, whether it's in where a bye week sits now or maybe tack a week onto the end of the season and still keep that intact. So there's a lot of brilliant people at the league who are working on this. And I don't think it's a coincidence that it came out in a way that the first four weeks of the season are pretty malleable. Um, hopefully it doesn't get to a point where that has to come into play. I would hate to be the guy who canceled football on September 11th, ten year, the 10-year anniversary of September 11th. But Yeah, uh, <laughs> it, it, none of this looks reflects well upon anybody yeah. it, uh, on either side of this right now. And, and if we get to a, uh, the first week or weeks in the season or out the window, then, then certainly it's not going to help anybody's approval ratings. Okay, football. I'm a big Saints fan, and I have had it with Reggie Bush. I'd like to see, I'd like to see him cut tomorrow. Uh, I don't think that's probably going to happen. But what do you make of his tweets? Is he well, basically just work- they can't cut anybody during the lockout? Well, they but- should just do it anyway because <laughs> <laughs> I've had it with him. I, I don't ever want to yeah. see him again. I don't want to ever see him I, fumble I, a punt again. I've had it with him. Well, I, I think a change of scenery is going to do him good, and I know. I've talked to Sean Payton about this at league meetings, and you know they still feel like there's a place for Reggie and a role for Reggie and a salary, not quite what he's making right now that would still make sense for Reggie and the Saints, but I, I don't see it happening. Uh, the drafting of Mark Ingram, they signed. Uh, people, Some people forget before the lockout came into effect, you know they got Pierre Thomas locked up yep. uh, for a few more years. Four-year deal. Uh, they had Ivory come on last year. I know that they'd love to have Reggie as a special teams guy and, and a third down guy and a spare part who can make explosive plays. But I think he wants to be elsewhere. He wants to get more touches. And his best chance of, of he's not going to be a feature back anywhere, but, but maybe getting more touches could be elsewhere. For him to stay there, he'd have to agree to a pay cut. And he may very well say, you know what, guys, what you put on the table is nice. I'm going to not accept anything right now. Go ahead and release me. I'll find out when I'm worth on the open market. If, if, if it turns out that your offer is, right there with the other offers or makes the most sense, then I'll do it. But I'd like the opportunity to explore free agency. Well, I think he got a gift last a Super Bowl present last season to even get the $8 million that they paid him last year. There's no way they're going to pay him the $11 million he's due this year. So, he's not getting that. I mean, he no. would have had to take a massive pay cut regardless. And given the way things have gone the last few weeks, uh, yeah, I just don't see that. Is there a market for him? Where, where, where does he fit? Who wants Reggie Bush? Certainly there's a market. I mean, he's a guy, again, who can help you win a game on special teams when he's right. He's a guy who can do things out of the backfield, particularly catching the ball. Um, You know, there's going to be coordinators who look at him and say, that's somebody who could could do some things for us. Um, You know, where he would end up, I mean, it's it's hard to say right now because there's going to be other guys who'd be released. Right. Um, You know, there's some teams who just drafted. Actually, we saw a pretty good run on running backs. You know, in what, like the second, third, fourth round. Yeah. Teams would want to see how those guys pan out. I mean, off the top of my head, Washington's in a running back situation where, yeah, they drafted a couple kids, but I mean, a Shanahan with a Reggie Bush, I could see that making sense. Seattle's situation is still somewhat unsettled. Um, and they made the trade last year, and that paid dividends with that long one long yeah. run. But, you know, Marshawn Lynch wasn't doing a whole lot a lot of those other weeks. And they have Leon Washington, who kind of fills that role, but. You know, they were they were going through a lot of backs last year, and, and maybe they, you know, Pete Carroll, Reggie's coach from USC, takes a look-see. I mean, you could go a lot of different ways. I mean, San Diego, who knows? They're going to lose Darren Sproles in all likelihood. 
maybe they look at Reggie Bush in, in something of that role. Uh, there's a lot of different ways. And be, trust me, he's not going to lack for, for work, but it's going to be more of a proven contract. It's not going to be him making that you know, first overall, second overall type money that he's used to from his rookie deal. It's going to be more incentive-laden, and it's not going to have as much guaranteed money. One of my favorite things to do during the draft is obviously figure out who the Saints are going to pick. And then second is root against the other teams in my division. And I was really excited today to hear uh, Pat Shermer say that he believes he's made the greatest trade in NFL draft history. What do you think about the deal that the uh, Browns and the Falcons made? And what do you think of Julio Jones? Yeah. Yeah, how do you think this is going to play out? Well, I thought it was a hell of a trade for... Cleveland, I thought that at the time. I, I think that post-haste, and I think them getting Greg Little. I'm not sure Greg Little's not going to have a better career than, than Julio Jones. We'll see. Um, I thought they got great value. Four for one, a future one, a future four. Um, they got a player in Phil Taylor in the first round who could be the best nose tackle in that draft. Um, so I like what Cleveland did. I don't know that Coach Shermer had a whole heck of a lot to do with the trade. I, mean, I, I want to <laughs> give credit to Tom Heckert and uh, their general manager and, and Holmgren, their team president, I think they had a whole lot more to do with it. Uh, talking to Thomas Dimitrov, Atlanta's general manager, for weeks, literally weeks leading up to that draft, about potential moves and value. I thought they squeezed Atlanta pretty good. Uh, but the greatest trade in NFL history remains to be seen. Um, but they, they're sitting on an extra first and an extra fourth next year. I love what they did in the draft this year. And I thought if, if, if Cleveland ever does turn it around, people may look back at, last year's draft and this draft and say that's where it all started. You know, it's interesting that you mentioned about Cleveland turning it around because a couple of teams that we usually look at as doormats of the league have um, had good drafts. Uh, I, the Lions come to mind. Everyone loves what the Lions did in the draft, and it seems like suddenly the Lions make sense after spending 10 years of not making any sense. Um, is there any teams, we're in Buffalo, and the Bills have struggled. They haven't been in the playoffs since the Music City Miracle. Is there any teams, I know it's hard because the rosters aren't, the rosters just yet, but is there any teams that you look at as possible, you know, teams that we kind of laugh at that could emerge as maybe doing what the Saints did a few years ago or, or what the Bucks did when they did it or, you know, anyone who's kind of outside of the, the realm that could really make a step forward? I mean, I like what a lot of teams did in this draft. I mean, I think Cincinnati getting Dalton at 35, getting A.J. Green. A.J. Green, yeah. uh, Some of the things they did a little bit later down. I think there's also going to be some uh, addition by subtraction there with T.O. out of that mix now and some of that sideshow gone. Uh, but but they're still, I, I believe, a ways away from, from really being ready to make a leap of any sort. And they still have to, that Carson Palmer situation to sort out. I thought Arizona had a hell of a draft. I really did, and a lot of GMs I talked to feel the same way. If they get a Kevin Cobb or a Mark Bolger, a quarterback, and it pans out, in the division they're in, you know, they, they may be three or four games better than last year, which that's probably all it's going to take to win that division again. Um, you know, I, I thought some of the things, even the Rams, we know we were talking about the Rams, Cooper Quinn could have gone on the top five or top six picks easily. And for them to, to get him at 14 and, and, and have another pass rusher there, put with some of their young talent and another year with that young offensive line and, and Sam Bradford, you know, coming along. I, I think they they did pretty well um, without getting a whole lot of fanfare. 
the Bucks, it's going to be feast or famine. Um, mm-hmm. they, they took some risks on some kids with some health issues. It Bowers. could pan out big time, or it could it could really flame out. And then obviously Carolina, if Cam Newton is who Carolina hopes and thinks and believes he's going to be, then no one's going to be talking about the fact that they didn't have a second-round pick and yada, yada, yada. I mean, if you find a franchise quarterback, you've made your draft. I don't care if you found him first overall or 199 with Tom Brady. Who else talks about anybody else? And that draft class for New England, it doesn't matter. They found a quarterback. It doesn't matter where they found him. That instantly becomes an epic draft. If Cam Newton turns that franchise around, then that's going to become a, a huge moment in the history of that organization. Yeah, the Bills have been looking for that guy since Jim Kelly. Uh, I guess the question is I don't expect a whole lot from them this year. Just that division alone, they'd have to jump over the Jets and the Patriots, which is totally unrealistic. Are they going to be bad enough to get luck next year? I guess would be the more realistic question. I mean, it'll be interesting. It's so hard to project that stuff right now. I mean, you look at all the teams that don't have a quarterback, and if they don't get that sized up, then they're going to be in trouble. Right. Miami doesn't get a quarterback. They may be the worst team in that division. Um, you know, you, you can look at, at Denver and who's going to be the quarterback there, and if they decide to trade in Orton, you know, you could almost start to look like they're almost – you know, looking to get in that luck sweepstakes. Uh, um, Washington doesn't mean it is back. How many games are they going to win in the NFC East if they really go with John Beck behind what, what could be one of the worst offensive lines in the league? They that that looks like a, a recipe for disaster to me. Um, you know, so you you can go around the league and, and you know find some teams that are, are, are at least appear to be in trouble or are going to be in trouble. I mean, I think the Bills added. I mean, they they added some players who who have the potential to really help them. Um, you know, I thought at times the Bills looked like they were turning the corner, at least to some degree last year, and then they sort of regressed. I don't think Fitzpatrick's the answer there long term. Uh, I'm more or less, you know, I understand why they did what they did at quarterback. I felt maybe in the second round they would have taken one, but but they seem pretty committed to to revamping that defense, and I understand, uh, you know, that makes sense, but but. Yeah, they're, they're still a rebuilding team. A lot of the offensive linemen they've taken in the last few years, they, they've got to take off. C.J. Spiller's got to be a player. You know, Aaron Maven, it looks like his huh. time is already yeah. coming yeah. on. You know, yeah. A lot of you know, Florence, some of the other guys there probably won't be back. It's still a team in transition. It's still a, it's still a team seeking its identity. But certainly with Johnson, and, and, and they had some explosive elements. And when Fitzpatrick was on, they were doing, you know, they had games where they did some pretty special things. So, at least they seem exciting and a little more vibrant under Chan Galley. But we'll see if if Chan Galley and, and and Knicks become the the management team, you know, and, and sort of the the brain thrust that's going to ultimately get them over the top. They do seem to be more uh, fan friendly. I mean, the last few the last few management regimes we've had here have been confusing with their drafts and almost like too smart for the room sometimes and Donahoe is a real angry guy yeah and they just and Marv Levy it, too old just not, none of it worked out so at least it feels like they have a little direction finally I guess all you need well, to know about the Bills is they've drafted three first three running backs in the first round since they last made the playoffs yeah yeah not good um, <laughs> But we'll see. I, I think Doug Whaley is a real, you know, could could be a real diamond in the rough for them. And he's someone who, who did a heck of a job with the Steelers and, and you know, is still an up-and-coming type guy and, and, frankly, someone who I think has real strong GM potential. So we'll see. I mean, Buddy Nix is, is not a young man. Um, 
this has kind of increasingly become a young man's game. We've seen more and more teams go with, with maybe less experience. Certainly some guys are less experienced than Doug is and let them be the head man in charge. And, and, you know, Doug could be groomed for that. And I think he's someone who brings that Pittsburgh mentality, understands sort of the money ball aspects of the game, understands what it takes to win in a small market, the importance of drafting, talent evaluation, you know, knowing who to extend and who to let walk out of your building. You know, he, he's someone who, you know, as I look at the, the future of that organization and them trying to turn things around long term, I think he's someone to keep an eye on. It was interesting that he got promoted, uh, what, I guess it was a week ago. Yeah, he, yeah He's someone that. who I, I really like and think, you know, could be one of the, the up-and-coming movers and shakers and sort of young risers in the league. A couple more things before we let you go. When players do start to be able to move around a bit, uh, I know D'Angelo Williams is is out is available. Um, Namdi Asamoah is available, and Kevin Cobb has said he wants to be traded. Well, let's just start with Cobb. Who are the biggest players in that sweepstakes when it does uh, start? And is there any other big free agents I missed when free agency does begin? Well, yeah, Cobb has felt like for a while he's going to end up in the NFC West, and, and after the way the draft shook out, that that looks to be the case. Seattle and Arizona, I expect to be the teams that are most intently pursuing him. Uh, and as for other guys, I mean, D'Angelo Williams, it, it depends on the rules. If we play under 2010 rules, D'Angelo Williams will be a restricted free agent. Um, you know, if we play under 2010 rules, Sidney Rice would be a restricted free agent. There, there's some huge differences in right. what that free agent class could look like depending on what on how things go and whether we get a, a deal through collective bargaining or whether we get a deal through uh, uh, the courts forcing the league to impose rules. And then we still don't know what exactly those rules would look like. The league is still formulating its plan itself. So it's awful hard to say. Nambi's going to be unrestricted either way. Nambi's going to make huge money. Um, you know, Nambi's going to be sought after by several teams. And, and, you know, we'll see who ultimately, you know, spends the most for him and, and what makes the most sense to him. Um, but right now, it's hard to handicap the free agent class because are Don't we playing under cap or right. aren't we? <laughs> yeah. You know, what's the budget? Are we playing under rules that are kind of makeshift just for one year, in which case a lot of teams and owners are going to be a little bit hesitant? Or are we in year one of a seven-year collective bargaining agreement where you know these rules are going to be in place for the long haul? You know, are we capped or uncapped? Is it four years for free agency or six years for free agency? Hmm. What what about a guy like T.O.? I know you just said it's hard to determine things like that, but has he well, he's going to be unrestricted no matter what. Yeah, I mean, I, he he had another bad experience with the team, right? He was yeah, very productive, but then he, he reverted to form at the end of the year. Mike Brown was the only guy who put any real money on the table for him, and at the end of the year, he turned around and he pretty much spat in Mike Brown's face and, yeah. and ripped the organization and really took the low road out of town. And that's what people fear, and that's why he didn't get paid. A year ago, and that's why he was on the market as long as he was. Drew Rosenhaus was trying to drum up support and kind of feign a deal here, or had a half deal here, or this little bit of overture of interest. So we're gonna, you know, try to parlay that into something else. When you look at who dabbled, dipped their toe in that a year ago, the Raiders in Seattle, you know, and Cincinnati. That was really it. Mm-hmm. And Cincinnati was the only team that really stepped up and put forth the kind of contract where if he produced, he could make you know legitimate money, four million in that range. You know, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think Seattle and Oakland still have a need there. Um, 
you know, he can make some sense for those teams. And, and clearly he's a guy who can still make some plays, but it, he's not going to beat you down. He's very limited now. He's not going to beat you with pure speed. He's not going to do a whole lot with the deep ball. I mean, he, he, he still drops a fair amount of balls, yeah. and you have to worry about him in the locker room. But you know he'll be in great shape, and, and you know, you know he, he certainly wants to win in his own way. And I don't know, maybe a team comes in out of nowhere and, and enters that fray, but those are the two teams that leap to mind with me in terms of T.O. News came down today that it looks like the Vikings have a deal for a new retractable roof stadium. Good for them, but that's another team that we have to cross off the list of potential teams in L.A. I know the commissioner has his heart set on one being there. And every time a team kind of switches, kind of, you know, goes from being on the list of L.A. to not, I worry a little bit more for the Bills just because even though I'm not a Bills fan, I love Buffalo. I'm from Buffalo. I always want the Bills to be here. Who's left as a possible team to be in L.A.? Is it going to have to be expansion? Is there ever going to be a team there? What happens? Uh, I mean, it could be expanded. Look, I can see a day where there's two teams in L.A., a current team and then an expansion team. I mean, that market's big enough and the league, the, the season's small enough that, you know, we've got two teams in New York. If, if they get this stadium built in downtown L.A., and it's this plan that, that the Casey Wasserman group's talking about right The one now. by Staples Center, right? Yeah. 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 Not the one in the city of industry. Right. Which, which could be where it ends up, but I'm talking about the one by the convention center. If that happens, you could have two teams there. Easy. Um over time. San Diego is a natural. I mean, okay. they, they've already got the, the, the fan base. They've, they originated in L.A. back in the old Coliseum, back in the AFL days. There's not, I mean, you, for look, for 10 games a year, you can do that drive. I mean, it's a couple-hour drive. It's not that, it's not that big of a deal. Um, what about already kind of the home market team. I mean, I'd feel bad for San Diego if that happened, but you got to look at the overall economic picture and if San Diego can't get a stadium deal, I think that happens. You know, Minnesota, there's some things in place after this press conference today, but a lot of funding that still needs to get done. I mean, the team's putting $400 million towards it, right. but they've got to make sure that the municipalities are, are truly willing to, to fit the bill for the rest. Um, but, but things certainly on the upswing for them. San Francisco and Oakland could end up sharing a facility. You know, they've got the... The, the move for the 49ers to uh, what is it, Santa Clarita or whatever, that kind of been put on hold because of the lockout and some other funding issues. They were originally looking for, what, 2014. I don't know that that's going to happen now. Uh, so there's te- you look at anybody in the league, Jacksonville. That, yeah, that's what I was going to say. Jacksonville solution. seems like the most most yeah, obvious choice. They're, they got that uh, tarp they always put up. <laughs> and Exactly, in the upper deck. I mean, how long is that going to last? How long will Wayne Weaver be committed to that area? Or will Wayne Weaver have the opportunity to get a sweetheart deal someplace else? Yeah, that and, seems like a college and, area and anyway. the team or whatever. Yeah, I mean, that, 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 that would be, you know, those are the teams that everyone's talking about in that regard. I mean, the Bills, I mean, if you're making me pick where the Bills might, if, if, they, had, if they left Buffalo. Don't say Toronto. Maybe there eventually <laughs> will be a team in Toronto. Oh. And, and, you know, Hasn't that kind of failed, though? I mean, they had to paper the stadium last year just to make it look full. And does Toronto want a team? It would have to be in a new. It have to be a state of the art facility. I mean, they, right. it wouldn't be in the old Sky Dome or whatever they're calling it now, Rogers Center, or right? Whatever. Right. Uh, if they, but if they, if if someone came in and built a true state of the art facility. In downtown Toronto, they would get an NFL. I mean, in my estimation, they'd get an NFL team. You know, within three to five years after that happening. 
But it may be a situation like L.A. where the stadium will have to be there first and then the team will follow. One more question for you. The NFL Network is doing a really cool thing right now, probably just to pass the time, where they're uh, naming the 100 best players in the league uh, as voted by the players. And I know this is kind of putting you on the spot, but if I put a ballot in front of you and asked you to put down your top five players in the league, who would you put down? Jeez, where's top five? I mean, Tom Brady is definitely... Tom Brady's definitely in that list. Uh, I, can, I can tell you that much. Whew. Real quick on Tom Brady. I, I, I think I would put Haloti Nada in there. I'd maybe have Haloti Nada somewhere around five. I think he dominates the game in a way that's, that few people do. Uh, I think Darrell Rivas would probably be in there somewhere for me. Um, I'm more of a little bit more of a Rivas guy than a Nomdi guy. Uh, Breeze or Peyton? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I probably would put a second quarterback in there somewhere. It wouldn't be Peyton. Um, I, I would go maybe Breeze or Phillip Rivers. Um before Peyton, I'd, I'd have one of those two probably in that equation. Um, you know, I'm trying to think running backs. Adrian? I don't know that I'd have, I don't know that I'd have Adrian quite that high. I don't, I don't know that I'd have a, a running back in that list off the top of my head. What about an end? Um, Any defensive ends? Yeah, that's what I'm kind of thinking about now. I, I mean, I, I, you can't go wrong with DeMarcus Ware. I, I right. really love uh, Tomba Holly. I don't know if he's quite top five yet, or, or either of them are, but, man, I, I'm huge fans of their game. Lamar Woodley, I think, is an absolute stud. You know, a guy who's in the top, I don't know, 5% of, of anybody in this league, regardless of position. Uh, yeah, I mean, those are... Those you are did good. Guys. We'll let you off the hook there. <laughs> that was good. Real, real quick, back on Brady. I made a comment earlier this year that if he won... The Super Bowl with the team he had this year, I think he'd be the best ever. And that pains me to say it a little bit as a Bills fan. But since that didn't happen, how, can you make that argument? Like, how close is he to, like, a Montana or. Uh, he's there. I mean, in he's my there, estimation, yeah. he's there. Yeah, I agree. Uh, my estimation, he's going to go down as, as one of. Man, he's going to be a guy you'll always be able to argue. quarterbacks in the history of the NFL. I mean, I, I think he's going to go down, you know, as someone who's in that that pantheon with a Unitas, with a Montana, with an Elway, you know, with a Bart Starr. I mean, he's, he's, he's going to be right there. And I don't think he's won his last title. And, and maybe he wins two more. And if you're talking that kind of excellence, and it's not just he won titles, but, hey, we just had, you know, he's not Terry Bradshaw. You know, a guy who statistically is not going to overwhelm you with anything he did. And, yeah, he did well in some big games, but come on, it was a different era, and, and they had the greatest defense in NFL history and a Hall of Fame running back and all that. Brady's never had any of that. He's never no. wanted any of that. He's never really cared about any of that. He, he, he beat you in so many different ways. Uh, I just, I don't know. To me, he's the best of, of his generation at what he does and one of the best ever at what he does. And if you're talking about someone who's one of the three or five best quarterbacks in NFL history, and you know how important that position is, then we're clearly talking about one of the you know ten to twelve best players in NFL history. How cool is it though that Drew Brees can get forty guys to come down to Tulane and practice during <laughs> the lockout? Many of which aren't even under contract to the team right now. 
It's just, yeah, it's no, just so he, cool. He, he's so cool. He's a tremendous leader. Uh, he's the man. He's someone who people absolutely rally behind. I mean, the way he kind of leads. How many quarterbacks can lead a huddle the way he does before a game? I mean, that's often the domain of defensive players. Right. Or, you know. You think of a Ray Lewis a doing that. You know? Yeah. I mean, and, and he, he's their emotional heartbeat. He's so smart. I mean, he's, he's, he's a guy who can lead because he's so cerebral and he's, he's visceral as well. And, and he just has a will to win and he's overcome, you know, a fair amount. He and makes my heart beat, Jason. Yeah, <laughs> people, people want to be like him. You know, people want to be around him. I want to hug him. He's also fitting the bill for some guys to come down there as well. So when you're paying the freight, that, yeah. that, that doesn't hurt either. Yeah, he's the man. All right, Jason Lackenfora. You can find him on Twitter. It is at Jason, L-A-C-A-N-F-O-R-A. He is also all over the NFL Network, NFL Access. Uh, any show pretty much there he's a part of. NFL.com. NFL.com. We can't thank you enough for joining us on the Sportscasters, and hopefully you can do it another time soon. Sounds good. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you. With the third pick in the 2011 NFL Draft, the Buffalo Bills select Marcel Darius. All right, we are back on the Sportscasters with the National Football Post Director of College Scouting. Uh, he's been monitoring the college football game since 2002, and he actually joined us a couple weeks ago to talk about the draft as we inched towards it, and he is kind enough to join us again, kind of looking back on it. Uh, it came up last week, and we were talking about some of the various grades that he gave on his uh, column at the National Football Post, and he is Wes Bunting. How are you doing today, Wes? I'm doing well. How are you? No, we're doing really good. Uh, really excited, personally, because I'm a big Saints fan, and uh, I was absolutely thrilled with the way the drafts went for the Saints, and uh, it seems like you agreed that it was fantastic, as you gave them an A+, and uh, one of your better grades. I think only one other team had an A++. Maybe it was uh, Detroit, I believe. You were maybe yeah. really high on Detroit as well, yeah, with an A++. But other than that, uh, you really enjoyed the Saints draft, and uh, oh, did you think that the trade that I felt like Atlanta gave up an arm and a leg to get Julio Jones, but it seemed like the, the price was a lot cheaper, obviously, much later in the round, but I thought the Saints got really great value in the trade for Mark Ingram. What did you think? Well, they gave up a first-round pick for last, next year, but overall, in my opinion, you get the best overall back in the class. A guy in that offense could be a 12, 13, 1400 yard back if you give him the proper touches. And they get a great value in Cameron Jordan. Yeah, absolutely. You, you look, me, yeah. When you look at those two guys, they're probably the safest first rounders that any team could pick. And then they did some, took some shots later in the draft. Romeus in the seventh, Martez Wilson in the third. Boom or bust guys, but you can look for home runs when you're hitting doubles and singles earlier in the draft. Tell me a little bit about Cameron Jordan. This is a guy who could play the five technique in a 34. Uh, with the Saints in their 43, he'll play as a base defensive end on that left side going against the right tackle. He's a natural pass rusher. He's got a good first step, and he gives you versatility in nickel situations. You could kick him inside, let him play some three technique as well, pair him with Cedric Ellis inside, and let those two get up the field. Plus, you can play him on the outside. Greg Williams loves to be versatile, play with one or two men down in nickel situations and stand everyone else up. He could definitely stand up as well. You know what else I'm pumped about, and I don't know how much you know about it, but Drew Brees is actually 
he's the best leader maybe of all time, and I, I think he proved it this week because most of the Saints draft picks have actually been working out kind of unofficially uh, with the whole Saints team. Well, not the whole team. I think they had about 40 players, but, I mean, what a great way to get a kind of jump, jump start. It's probably an advantage that not many of the other rookies are getting, you know, so I'm really excited about, about the class, and I'm a little scared, though, because I think a couple of the other teams in the division did really good, and in, in specifically as Tampa Bay. I think that they're going to be a really, really tough team in the future. And how lucky were they to get Daquan Bowers as late as they did finally get him? Well, it was a gift, yeah. without a doubt. This is a guy who I never thought he was a top 5 or 10 caliber talent, but he's a good three-down player, and he's definitely a first-round caliber talent. And if he keeps himself healthy and you pair him with their first-round pick, Adrian Claiborne, and their first and second rounder from last year, Brian Price from UCLA, and number three overall, Gerald McCoy. That's a heck of a front four. Young, talented, and they can get after you in a number of ways. So I like what they did. I like what they did, too, in the sense that, you know, if you just look at who they're playing in the division, I mean, one of the Saints' weaknesses is maybe left tackle, and their pass rush is going to be improved, and I think they made some... Some great picks. I, I disagreed. I, I thought that Carolina blew it. I just, I don't, I don't see it in Cam Newton. I'm not, a, I'm not a fan, and uh, I know that he wasn't anywhere near number one on your board. Uh, do you, you're, you got to be down on Carolina for that pick. I know you gave him a C. Why don't you talk to us a little bit about Carolina's draft? Well, you know, it really doesn't matter what they did in the third, fourth, fifth, or sixth round. It's, it's all on Cam Newton, and when you have. To put that much into one pick, there's a bunch of other guys out there I'd rather put that in than Cam Newton. You know, he could end up being the best quarterback in the NFL if he wanted to, but I don't have convictions that he will be. I think he's a guy that's going to really struggle to learn the NFL game, and overall I just wouldn't be able to pull the trigger on him in the first round, let alone with the number one overall pick. What do you think was the biggest reach in the, in the first round? Well, I'd say Cam Newton Newton, uh, was up there. A bunch of the quarterbacks. I mean, I had Ponder as my number one overall quarterback. But him going 12 was a little surprising. Uh, So so I would say the quarterbacks is where you look at whenever you're talking reach. How do you think the Bills did? Uh, We're from Buffalo, and uh, I know my partner here, Donnie, is really interested. I thought at the time, I thought Marcel Darius was certainly the pick that made the most sense. They didn't do anything crazy, like draft another running back for no reason. (laughs) Uh, how do you think the Bills did uh, overall with their draft? I thought they did pretty well. Um, you know, picking three, that was a tough spot. I like Darius. I don't like him at three. I think Fairley's a better talent. I think ultimately he'll end up being a better player. But it's almost when you're picking that high, it's not a case of getting the best player, but making sure you're not wrong. And Darius is the safer prospects, And he'll be able to play the nose inside. He can anchor at the point of attack. He's got a little upside as a pass rusher. And he'll help immensely from day one. Now, you're not a fan of Aaron Williams, on the other hand. No, I'm not an Aaron Williams guy. I just don't know what he's going to do for you in the NFL. I think he's a bit stiff, plays high, and doesn't run overly well to play corner. I don't think he's overly instinctive to make the move to safety. I think he's a potential starter in a press scheme or a cover-two type scheme at the next level. But overall, I just think taking him... In the second round, you know, I would have been even more turned off if he went late one. Second, I can live with a little more, but I would have thought, me personally, I see him more as a third, fourth round player. Your favorite pick for the Bills was uh, linebacker Calvin Shepard. I I know he's a guy that a lot of people don't know much about. Can you tell Buffalo what to expect in uh, Calvin Shepard? 
Well, he's not special in any area of the game, but he's good in every area of the game. He plays with a mean streak. He was the one guy at LSU everyone seemed to rally around. He's got some pop at the point of attack. He's fluid enough to drop off into coverage and play some man. Not a great blitzer, but he's always around the football, and he's a very good tackler. Instincts are okay, and he'll, he's very aggressive. He'll run himself out of plays at times. But overall, he puts himself in a lot of positions to make plays on the football, and that's what I like. Uh, one thing that really surprised me is you gave the Bengals a C plus, but they, they did end up picking your man AJ Green, who you had number one on your big board. Uh, did they just really just botch it in the later rounds? Uh, why were you Why were you down on the Bengals uh, draft? Well, I think they reached on Dalton in the second, and again, I'm down on taking all these quarterbacks as high. And, I'd much rather have Dalton in the second than Locker in the top ten. Right. But overall, I was a little down on that. Dante Moak, I think he can be a nice special teams player, but I think he's a better fit in a 34 flying off the edge. Robert Sands, I don't know what position you play him at. Um, I think he's too stiff to play in space. He's an in-the-box, two-down, safety only. Maybe he might have to make the move to a, a linebacker. But those two are more special teams players from day one overall than I'd see potential long-term starters, and I just think that's why they reached a little bit, and that's why I gave them a poorer grade than most. One of the poorest grades you gave was a D to the Miami Dolphins. They picked, uh, maybe they were looking to go safe and uh, pick the twin brother of uh, NFL star, uh, picking Mike Pouncey in the first round. Uh, what didn't you like about the Dolphins draft that put you uh, in the D grade for them? Well, everything other than Mike Pouncey, to be honest. I'm not a big Daniel Thomas fan. I think he runs too upright. All you see is shoulder pads and legs with the guy, and he gives you a lot of room to get underneath, and he'll hit you at the point, and you can be easily brought down at the point of attack. Edmund Gates, the receiver, he's more of a one-trick pony, a vertical threat only, and I don't think he plays as fast as he times. I think he's raw as a route runner, and I just think those two guys that you're looking at to come in and start for you early in their NFL careers and I think both are more comfortable as reserves in the NFL, to be honest. Yeah, um, uh, yeah. The, the Dolphins and a lot, most of the teams in the AFC East just didn't seem to have a very good draft. Um, even the Patriots, they had all those picks, but only a B minus. Why do you think the Patriots are constantly kind of training back and out? It just seems like they never end up picking anybody. Well, I think it's all about value with the Patriots. They want to make sure that they get they'll buy that they feel comfortable with the players on the board overall. And if they don't like who's there, they'll be contentious to trade out. I think that sometimes gets them in trouble because there's some good players that can help their team on the board at the time. Yeah, I, I just it always seems like <laughs> the Patriots aren't making a pick. They're making a trade. But uh, they did pick Ryan Mallett. How do you think that will work out? Do you think he's a guy who can kind of sit back and learn under Brady and maybe either be a guy that they end up trading for a high pick like they did with uh, Matt Castle? Or do you think that they view this guy as someone that can actually start for them when the Tom Brady era is over? Well, I think they're looking at this guy as a long-term starter, without a doubt. But when's that going to be? Right. Uh, Tom Brady, he's not 35. The guy has a bunch of good years left in him. And, you know, if you look at the contract like for Ryan now, it'll probably be a four-year deal. And I don't think Brady will be out of there within four years. So in that case, you have a pretty good backup that, you know, has some starting potential down the line. But if Ryan Mallett doesn't make it in New England, I don't know where he's going to make it, to be honest. Just about everyone hated the Chargers draft, and you were also one of them, gave him a D. 
What is it about the Chargers draft that everyone seems to hate so much? Well, I just think they left a lot of value on the board. Jonas Mouton in the second round as a nickelbacker, I thought that was a big reach. I had him more as a late-round free agent guy overall. Um, I'm not a huge fan of Corey Legit going to their 34. I thought he'd be better in a 43. I do like the Marcus Gilchrist pick in the second round. Versatility, can play some free safety, can come over the slot. I, I think he can also play on the outside as a corner. He was the one guy I did like, but Jonas Mouton in the second and Corey Legit, I didn't like that at all. Do you think that the St. Louis Rams did enough to help Sam Bradford in this draft? Well, they got some options for him with Salas and Pettis, but both aren't starters on the outside, in my view. They're both slot guys that are number fours. They're not overly shifty, but they can catch the football and move the chains over the middle of the field. You know, it gives them some more added weapons, but overall, neither are a dynamic threat. And because of that, I still think they'll be looking for receivers on the outside for Bradford down the line. Uh, we all know that there's plenty of people in the Hall of Fame who weren't drafted, and as we wait here for free agency to start, who are the players that are still out there that you think would be the the players that teams will be most interested in, in signing when that option is available? Well, two guys that I really like. One's a tight end slash offensive lineman from Maryland, Will Yeatman, former lacrosse player. He's 6'6", 275 pounds. He's got the ability to put on the weight and move to left or right tackle. Still learning the game, but a really gifted, coordinated athlete with that lacrosse background. David Mims from Virginia Union is a 6'8", 330-pound offensive tackle as well. The guy moves pretty well. He's extremely raw, but he's a long-armed kid who can bend. He has natural range. I think he could end up fighting for a starting right tackle job down the line if you give him a chance to develop. Speaking of uh, crazy, freakish sized guys have you ever heard of the bills last draft pick michael jasper i have heard of him he uh is overweight needs to get in shape but he is a massive man doesn't move overly well which can be expected and uh he's a developmental pick to the nth degree uh if he gets in shape i think he has a shot but there's not too many guys that play at 400 pounds right right yeah, it was, an, it was an interesting pick to hear that there's this 400 pound 6'4 guy and they were saying he could dunk with both hands and so it, he'll be entertaining, at least, I suppose, even if he doesn't pan out to be anything. He'll be fun to watch. Were you surprised how far Prince Amukamara fell in the draft? No. no. I mean, he's not. A, everyone made this guy out to be something special. He's not a special player. I, I thought he was going to be an average NFL starter in the NFL, and I think you know that, that's kind of where he goes mid in the first round. I think his best thing is versatility. He can play some free safety. He can play in the slot. He can play on the outside. He can be physical at times. But, you know, when they were saying that this guy is a potential top ten pick, I didn't know what tape they were watching. I saw a guy that teams would go after on occasions at Nebraska. And if you're an elite prospect, teams aren't wanna, don't want to go after you. Patrick Patterson, is he the safest player in this draft? Um, he is the second. Behind A.J. Green, in my opinion. I think Green is uh, uh, nearly an automatic lock to become a blue-chip receiver in the NFL. And isn't that ironic that the two safest guys went to Cincinnati and Arizona, who are not necessarily known for being uh, wizards at the draft, huh? (laughs) Somewhat uh, ironic there. But it's Wes Bunting. He's from the National Football Post, a fantastic website. If you never checked it out, it's www.nationalfootballpost.com. You can follow him on Twitter. He is at Wes Bunting, and he has been so kind 
to join us two times. Uh, Don has one more question for yeah, you. Yeah, real quick. When you do these things, do you ever, uh, just for your own sake, go back, like, I don't know, three, four years down the road to see how you did? Oh, absolutely. What? I mean, you, the best way to figure out, you know, and to learn is looking back on your mistakes and figuring it out that way. So what were some a of the town of value where what, you have to. Yeah, what were some of the biggest, like, what did you have the most right? Like, what were ones that most people didn't see and you nailed it or maybe ones that you were kind of tough on that turned out to be uh, much better than you expected? Are there any that stand out? Um, well, last year, Hernandez, I had as the number one tight end prospect in the draft. He went in the fourth round, and I think he's going to end up being a Dallas Clark type player yeah, that overall. Um, kind that I missed on, Aaron Maben was the one. I saw that he had a fastball off the edge and could turn the corner. But as a pass rusher, you need to keep these tackles off balance and you need to change up something that you can counter off of, and he didn't have that. And I've learned a ton uh, looking at defensive end and pass rushers from our mistake with Aaron Maven. So. <laughs> that's great as a Bills fan. <laughs> is there is there a specific position that's hardest to nail? No, not real. I mean, they're all hard, and you just kind of get after it, do your homework, and you know, I'm not really into the mock drafts and figuring it out that way. But my big, what I get paid for is to evaluate these players and to make sure I say who's going to be good players and who's not. So that's really what my key is, trying to make sure I get the right grades on all these players. Okay, th- thank you very much. We can't thank you enough. Again, he's Wes Bunting, the National Football Post. He's at westbunting.com. What do you do now? Uh, you just get ready to watch college football and greet everyone again or – uh, what's the rest of West Bunting's year like now that the draft is over? Well, I start looking ahead to 2012 right now, just trying to get a feel of all the prospects. And I believe my order of tape will be coming in in about a week or two, and then I'll start getting ready for these seniors for 2012 and write them up all summer. You, yeah, you did put your first uh, column up, breaking down the 2012 uh, QB, pa- QB class. Um, seems like... Uh, Locker is going to be the big big guy next year, right? Luck. Uh, what's that? Luck. Luck, Luck. I'm sorry. Is Luck the guy that you think, uh, if you had to pick one right now, will be the number one pick next year? Yeah, without a doubt. Without a doubt. All right. Thank you very much, Wes. We really appreciate your time. Hope we didn't keep you too long, and hopefully we'll talk to you in the future. Thanks a lot. Thank, thank you thank very you. much. All right, Donnie. That means only one thing. Book club. Book club. All right, so we just finished a couple weeks ago with From Bags to Riches. Uh, Jeff Duncan was nice enough. Actually, that was just last week. Jeff Duncan was nice enough to come on and talk all about From Bags to Riches, and it made me really happy to be able to uh, talk Saints for a whole entire episode, basically. But uh, the book club of the month book, you know, I actually, the other day, I went to... Barnes and Noble, and I walked around and I thought of some things. I was thinking about Rex Ryan's book, and then I was like, "Yeah, Rex Ryan's never coming on this show, and <laughs> it's not as fun if you can't get the author." And I have been in contact with Ian O'Connor a couple times over Twitter. He hasn't committed yet, but I think we can get him. So, taking a small risk, the book of the month this month is going to be the Captain of the Journey, the Journey of Derek Jeter. Just makes sense. It's baseball season. This book has been. Uh, talked about quite a bit due to some controversial statements about the relationship between Derek Jeter and Alex Rodriguez. And Ian O'Connor has covered Derek Jeter since he's been a rookie. So not only did he do 200 unique interviews with 
uh, people for this book, but it's also, uh, you know, some of it has just come from his experiences in and around Derek Jeter, who has always been kind of a polarizing figure. Now, I was going to buy a copy of this book at Amazon the other day, but it's like 26 bucks, or at Barnes & Noble. At Amazon, it's $15 and is eligible for the uh, free standard shipping. So I would go that route if you're interested in reading with us. Hopefully, we'll be able to get Ian O'Connor on and get a copy to give away. I can't make any promises. This is also available on Kindle for $13.92. So there's plenty of ways to get it. And uh, I think it just makes the most sense right now. What do you think, Dan? Sounds good. All right. So The Captain by Ian O'Connor is officially the book of the month. Start reading. No longer gets an introduction because once you've been here six times, we just kind of say, hey, Zach, what's up, buddy? How you doing? Am I the leader in the clubhouse right now? You are. Padding my lead? You are the leader in the clubhouse. Dave's going to be on next week. It'll be time number three for him, so you're, you're, pretty, you're pretty far ahead. And my evil computers would say that's twice as many as Dave. That is twice as many as Dave. So you are maybe I have maybe I have more free time than Dave. <laughs> that could be. But you know another thing is is we had that bet during March Madness, so we talked like four weeks straight, and it ended up just being a tie, which is kind of funny, as we yeah we uh well, we put a lot at stake, fun. and it ended up just being a kiss your sister kind of thing. And I know Don. Well, we put a. Don ended, put up, into it. Don ended up painting his chest anyway and running around his neighborhood. <laughs> yeah, I loved it. <laughs> but, uh, all right, it's been a while. We haven't talked to you. First thing I want to know, what do you think of the new basketball coach? Like For him? Oklahoma? Yeah. Do we even have a basketball team? <laughs> we do have a team, and I have some high hopes for it in the future because it's basketball coach. He's got me. I like him. Yeah, I... I um I'm less enthusiastic about Oklahoma basketball. There's other things to do in the winter. Yeah, but Lon Kruger is now our man. And we just had the NBA Rookie of the Year. Just named. Lon Kruger has a very busted-up nose. His nose isn't that pretty. I'll give you that. But, I mean, as far... Pippen thinks he's got a busted nose. (laughs) (laughs) Well, he graduated from Kansas State, so he's a big 12-er. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's from Kansas. He's got a wife named Barbara. Son named Angie, and or daughter named Angie, son named Kevin. Let's see, he was at UNLV before this. He worked in the NBA quite a bit for the Knicks and the Hawks. I remember. He was at Illinois and Florida for, Florida for six years, Illinois for four. He was at his alma mater for, he's been all over. Maybe this isn't that great. This guy's been fired like ten times, it looks like. Everybody gets fired. Every, every job in life is hired to fire. Yeah, that's right. Don, I have to talk to you later, buddy. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> so you're not enthusiastic about it, Don? No no go for Lon Kruger. No, uh, no sooner I, I excitement th- there. Yeah, I think the term is apathetic. Apathetic. I just, I'm, I'm just indifferent. I mean, I love our boys, but it's like, you know, to get fired up for basketball season <laughs> in, uh, 
in May is a little bit much. I'm still grieving what the Lakers did this past weekend. That was rough. What happened to the Lakers there? Four games and out? Just nothing, huh? And they brought no fight to game four either. They just quit. Oh, I mean, they, they brought a fight at the end when they were well, down. Well, yeah, they were pushing people <laughs> all over the place. But. Yeah, they were living every junior high a junior high uh, basketball player's dream. When you blow out, you just try to just to punch the other team. Do you think LeVar so Odom just like suddenly realized he was married to Khloe Kardashian and got all pissed off and pushed that guy? <laughs> No, I just think that when you get used, I mean, it's so cliche when you're just not used to getting your ass kicked and you get it handed to you. It just, you know, they embarrass their logo. I mean, you know, if you're from LA and you know everybody around the country is a Laker hater, but you know, if you were from LA and, and my age, you grew up with Magic Johnson, and you know, you were. I mean, this the Lakers are like a staple of this town, and they treat it like you know the college basketball out here. People follow them, and it's about the program and. You know what it means, and so for them to uh, to really just kind of embarrass the lo- you know their logo and uh, embarrass what they uh, what they've done. I mean, if you're gonna lose, just lose. Don't be a punk about it. You know, and especially right. if you're gonna lay down because they laid down in that game. So you know, for Bynum to go two for seven from the field and then take out JJ Barea and tear off his shirt was just like. That was weak. I mean, that was like, you know, Cosmo Kramer in the dojo, Bill Murray swatting kids at Rushmore. <laughs> you know, it's just, you know, it's just weak. So where do they go from here? Does Biden come back next year? I've been hearing some stuff that he may be out the door. Uh, Kobe's getting up there. Phil won't be back. Who's the coach? Well, where do the Lakers go from here? I, I'm, I will say that I'm just very glad that I'm not their general manager. That I, these are not my problems. Um, <laughs> it, it, it really depends on... I guess, like, coaching first. Like, who are they going to, uh, you know, are they going to, you know, you got to establish an offense. Uh, I believe, personally, that they'll get Dwight Howard. But the problem is Jerry Buss really likes Andrew Bynum. So, if they, uh, no, Bynum's not well-liked out here. Uh, Bynum isn't well-liked. Gasol was well-liked. I think he undid, undid like, three years of goodwill. Yeah, no kidding. He has disappeared. And we, and we were talking about it today in the office, and you know, three years ago when the Lakers got beat by the Celtics, you know, the Celtics were so much tougher than the Lakers that it's almost as if the Lakers made the mandate to um, to get tough. And they beat Orlando, but nobody really cares about that out here. I mean, you know, beating beating Orlando is not really you know what people get excited about. But then you beat the Celtics with our tests, and you got tough. I think somewhere between point A and point B, they forgot to get younger and quicker. And, you know, so they've had so many close calls in facing, you know, these upstart point guards like Russell Westbrook and Chris Paul and Darren Williams, but they've beaten all those guys. It's it's ironic that, you know, a KG veteran like Jason Kidd was overseeing the offense that finally undid the Laker uh, dynasty. It's interesting that everyone really killed Memphis for just dumping Gasol to the Lakers. And, you know, I suppose that's what it was at the time. But, you know, here's Memphis three years later. And uh, they're still playing hoops, and uh, obviously the Lakers have won two championships in between, so it's not like they're regret the yeah, trade. Yeah, I, I don't think the Lakers have any second guess in getting rid of Marcus All. I mean, you know, they they played for three titles in a row, right, won yeah. two of them, and Memphis is uh, in the second round. Right. I, so, I guess uh, I was just saying it wasn't quite as bad as it looked at the time, maybe. In retrospect, yeah, I mean. You know, people always ask about timing. You know, Laker fans are weird because you know everybody's an armchair general manager. And when Kobe and Shaq had their big breakup after the Detroit, you know, series, yep. where the Lakers got beaten five by Detroit, you know, people won't admit to it now, um, and it's really hard to. But this was a Shaq town. People were want more into Shaq and wanted Shaq to stay 
and they felt the loyalty should have been with Shaq rather than Kobe. And um, when Shaq left, people were very, you know, I don't know, people weren't 100% on board that Jerry, uh, Jerry Buss was standing behind Kobe, but it turned out to be the right decision. I just think that, you know, a lot of times accountants and maybe statistical analysts and CPAs and lawyers are really good at doing their job and not necessarily running the front office of the Lakers. So here's my question. Now, when the Sabres got eliminated a couple weeks ago by the Flyers, I decided I hated the Flyers even more than I hated the Bruins, and I decided to root for the Bruins. What part of this? <laughs> as far as you are as a fan, do you root for Dallas and Cuba now, or have you decided you hate them and you're going to go for whoever wins Memphis and Oklahoma City? Well, I, I would also think that, you know, in, in the initial part of any conversation that you ask a Laker fan, the Lakers, they'll tell you that the Lakers didn't, uh, the Mavericks didn't win that series. The Lakers, Lakers lost, lost it. Yeah. And as you peel back the layers, eventually, but no, no disrespect to the Mavericks. I mean, they played great, but uh, no, I, I just in, in basketball, I, I don't lose sleep over the Lakers. I mean, I grew up with them. I like them. It's nice. I like spending June with them on television. It's great. It's fun atmosphere around here. Um, you know, you have your watch parties, and everybody loves the Lakers in Los Angeles. And call us movie star town, or call it whatever you want. But you know, they they are an embodiment of this town, the same way the Red Sox and the Yankees might represent their city to a T. So, you know, I got no ill will against the Mavericks. I think you know what they did was great. Um, they played fantastic. Uh, you know, I think that from a marketing point of view, it's more just disappointing that the Heat will probably win the you know yeah. win the title, but. Heck, if if they do what they're doing, nobody handed them the title. I mean, they're kicking the crap out of Boston. Yeah, they are. Um, you know, and and that's not because LeBron's unlikable; it's because they're just beating them. And um, so, I mean, for me, yeah, the NBA is a little bit less compelling without the Lakers. But I'm not going to go and I, I I have not declared I hate the Mavericks for life. Probably because I didn't bet on the series. If I would have bet the Lakers, <laughs> every time I lose a bet, I always hit. You know, let's say. I bet the Sabers and the Sabers lose. I hate them for life. <laughs> but, uh, it's not that way. Um, I would love to see Dallas play Miami because it's interesting because a lot of people hate Cuban, but a lot of people like Cuban a lot, and then a lot, almost everybody hates Miami. So it'd be interesting to see where the country would fall, who would root, you know, who would be, um, who the country would adopt. In you that know what scenario. I realized is, and you know, I guess maybe my priorities are changing. I'm getting older, and you know, I have a little kid now, and. It takes so much effort to hate LeBron James or to hate Mark Cuban or to hate the Lakers or to hate Derek Jeter. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, these guys are the icons of our generation, you know, uh, of of this decade. It, it's who they are. It, it's who, you know, they're, they're the chapters of the history books. In the same way, you know, John Elway and Dan Marino and Joe Montana represented you know, the 80s and Tom Brady and, and Peyton Manning in football. You know, I just, uh, you know, I don't, LeBron when, does not care about me. And Mark Cuban doesn't care about me. <laughs> but what they do care about is um, their profession. So I might not like somebody, but I'm not, I just, to, you know, I hate Texas. I hate Texas oh, and I hate God, Texas yeah. football. And that, that, I guess I'm going to put all my energy into hating them and anybody who misses baskets when I have the over. Or, or screws me when I, I lay the points. Have you been out to Staples Center to watch Blake Griffin at all as a pro? I, well, I was at the slam dunk competition, cool. um, That's cool. which was 
really cool. That was yeah. a lot of fun. My wife and I, we got a babysitter. It was like the second time we had uh, left uh, little Charlie at home, and we went out there, and uh, it was a lot of fun. I mean, that was it was electric. But um, you know, I've just, I mean, maybe I'm a, a loser a little bit, but I don't know if I can get out of the house. It's just not going to be to see a Clipper game. Right. Yeah, I understand that. Uh, but the Clippers are maybe on the rise a little bit. I mean, Blake just I mean, won the, the Clippers have been the on the rise since the 80s. <laughs> <laughs> I'll believe it when I see it. You know the Clippers were once the Buffalo Braves? Like that really? That was our team. I, I, but I think oh. they moved somewhere in between. Uh, San Buffalo. Diego. Is San Diego where they went? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you can have them back if you want. No, that's all right. We're good. I don't think anyone the, cares The here. Clippers are like about as, like the worst run franchise in history. I mean, a few years ago when they opened Staples and they closed the Forum and the Clippers were playing at this horrible place called the LA Sports Arena, they offered them to move to Anaheim. And Anaheim loves their sports, and they could have played in the Pond, which is now the Honda Center, right, yeah. which is a, a great, great, great venue. Dedicated fan base. They would have sold out every night. And they decided to uh, you know, pass it up and just be the Lakers' bitch and stay here in L.A. Silly. Um, yeah, so, I mean, they're just, they're, they're just about as poorly run as possible. And you know, forget it. You know, if if you root for the Clippers, uh, you're going to go nowhere. And I, you know, they, I guarantee you, a bad thing, a really bad thing, will happen to that organization before a really good thing happens to it. Well, Mark I guess that already happened, right? I mean, a really bad no, no, thing but it's happened not, last year. It's not year. like one and done. Right. It's oh, like okay. a cyclical so, nature of right. bad things. So they had a good thing this year with a huge year from Blake Griffin. So now they're due for something devastating next year. Yeah, so they so they they uh, had a really good year where they didn't win half their games, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and then they're going to come firing back and something bad will happen. And just just trust me, something bad will happen. This is how it works. So, are you getting any more excited about football season, Oklahoma? I mean, just before we get onto other things, which I know we got to talk golf because you're probably foaming at the mouth over there to talk some golf. But uh, I um, yes, I, I I am. I mean. You know, again, I just college football is such a diseased sport, and it's you know it's great to be on top. You know, it's great to be saying, "All right, you're going to be the number one seed going in, and don't fuck it up from here to the end. And if you do, just do it early." So that that's good. If it's going to be elitist, it's nice to be elite. Um, You know, I love that Utah is ranked like number 22 preseason, but if they were in the Mountain West, they probably wouldn't even be ranked. I mean, it's just that that makes no sense at all. Uh, but yeah, I guess it's, it's kind of exciting getting ready for uh, OU football. Um, got a really tough schedule. I'm going to go to the Florida State game, which will be nice. Going to go out there with my friends and That'll get away for a few September days. September 17th. But you know, if they can, I just just once I want the, you know ever since Big Game Bob, you know, kind of came back to earth when uh, Eric Crouch ran that double reverse in yeah, Lincoln in, in yeah. 2001. I just want to want Oklahoma just to play well on the road and. I don't think that anything will change until they actually do it because, you know, they play so poorly on the road and nobody throws more interceptions under five yards than Landry Jones. But, uh, you know, I, I think sucks they, on the road too. Yeah, the Big 12 will be easier this year because Texas isn't going to be any good. That's awesome. That's always yeah, cool. Yeah, which, which will be great. And, you know, it's so weird to not even worry about Nebraska. And I mean, who, who's even in the conference anymore? It's it, it's 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 you know the big two and the little eight. Yeah, is the toughest game. I mean, I'm looking at the schedule here, and obviously Florida State on September 17th is a very tough game. Is Missouri the following week the, the next toughest game? Yeah, Missouri's not going to be tough. You know, Missouri is not a real. 
and I even I wasn't even impressed with Missouri beat us. Like I was impressed that they played really well, but we you know we ran a really bizarre defense where we decided not to guard any of their wide receivers. Right, and, and their big players it, made plays that day too. Yeah, and two two interceptions in the red zone aren't going to help, and they I think translated into fourteen points. So that was like twenty point switches. Uh, but yeah, I think Missouri got their taste. They won't they won't beat us. They won't beat Oklahoma again right. as long as Bob Stoops and Gary Pinkler are the coach. And Texas A and M I've heard about this year, but they're, uh, that game's at home. So the game to worry about is going to be at at OK Oklahoma State. State. Yeah. Yeah, that will uh, having to go back up there again. Right. Um, that that will definitely be something to. Uh, We've beat them eight yeah. times in a row. I mean, eventually Oklahoma State has to win a game in this series, right? And how many years but can you, we beat Oklahoma they, State they, in a they, row? They did it, but if you take a look at like their history against Oklahoma, you know what they did in the early part of the last decade with Les Miles. Um, I think that was their quota. I mean, they ruined a lot of Oklahoma parades. You know, if it wasn't for. Oklahoma State. Oh, you would have been the team that got embarrassed by that Miami team in uh, you know, two thousand one. Not not uh, Nebraska. Yeah, yeah. So I, thank God for Oklahoma State. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, that we got a while. We'll talk about Oklahoma more as the time goes on for sure. A question. I this is something I heard the other day, and I, I was trying to remember who it was. Joe Piznanski was interviewing someone. Oh, Ian O'Connor. And they were talking about whether or not they thought Tiger Woods is going to break the record for all-time major wins. And Ian O'Connor was on the yes side. Poznanski was on the no side. I thought they both had some interesting takes. Being you are the biggest golf fan I know, what do you think? I don't think he does it. I mean, in based on what his, like... I said, like, based on what his win per entrance ratio was, and I don't know it, since he won the U.S. Open at Torrey Pines, I believe that was 10 majors ago, and he hasn't gotten any. So he's fallen dramatically off the pace just from an average point of view. And when you start to look about things about knee injuries, which is uh, what he's had, you know, re-aggravated at the Masters, and he starts to get into a swing pay, uh, swing. Um, change in the era of invincibility being gone uh, it just doesn't set up for the kind of dominance that he had and if you take a look at what he did again in Pebble Beach when he won by all those strokes his game isn't that isn't so far superior uh, to it I mean his length has been neutralized um, he's no longer the longest player on tour as a matter of fact in the Masters through the first two rounds he was only averaging 285 yards off the tee which is pretty small for a pro He's not the best iron player. His short game's not that great, and his putter's suspect. So putting has been you, bad for sure. Yeah, yeah, but putting, you know, putting comes and goes. So I never really want to hold putting, you know, to you know, as a major stat in, in engaging people. Uh, but you know, all the advantages that Tiger had uh, throughout the uh, from 2000 to 2009, through you know, from the from Pebble Beach through uh, through Torrey Pines. You know, that seems to have been neutralized, and there is a new new breed of golfer that's just not afraid of him, uh, who's just not going to cower to him. And, you know, and I, I, so I think that he's, uh, the idea that he can win as many majors, I mean, realistically, what, he's 35 right now, 40 is the cutoff, because he's not going to be dominating in his 40s. So he's got five, five years, years, which left, is 20 right. majors. He's got to win 25% of the next majors for the next five years to get there. 
That's not happening. Didn't Jack win one well into his 40s, though? Maybe he could win one in between 40 and 50. Maybe. So you're so that would mean he would need to win 21% right, right. of the majors the, over the next five years. Right. So that's at least one a year, and that's I just you know I don't think that's going to happen. And like I think he might win one or two, probably one of Masters, but the U.S. Opens are going to be really hard for him to do, especially uh, because he's some kind sometimes kind of wild with his driver. And uh, until the swing change you know comes and he actually puts together four good rounds and actually sees a lead on you know Saturday or Sunday, it's just I you know I'm amazed looking at the. Uh, EPC this weekend, where he's never played great. I mean, he's uh, he's the favorite at fourteen to one, which is you know fantastic great, for me yeah. because I'm because that means play. you can get he's in. sixteen bets. He's healthy. He, well, he's going to play. Yeah, but he's not healthy. Right. Do you think he should wait? I mean, is there? A, it, it's so weird to talk about a golfer as being injury prone. You know, I mean, it's just a strange thing. You wouldn't expect. You know, I, he what he hurt well, himself in the. But it's, the it's a re-aggravation of, of an ongoing knee that, that got repaired. I mean, he really did an amazing job in selling it out to win that uh, title at, at, at Torrey Pines and playing on one leg, to play a fifth round on that leg, a shredded leg. Um, so I don't, I don't think he can win this week. And I, I don't know whether Vegas is deciding that they feel that Tiger is, you know, the all-time great sucker's bet where people right. will just pump in some money. and Especially you know, at 14 one underrate, to 1. Yeah, underwrite the cost of the losses, but uh, you know my good friend Andy is the biggest Tiger fan in the world, and you know it's it's I tell him it's like the Lakers; you can't win just because you're there anymore. It, it's a lot different. Guys like you know Watney and Mahan and uh, you know Dustin and you know Keimer and even Phil are going to look at this guy, and they're not afraid. Right. Who are the top five golfers in the world right now? Uh, I, to me, it's, you know, Lee Westwood is, is great. He's winning on all these different continents. But the best golfer in the world right now to me is Luke Donald. I mean, he might be number two in the world rankings, but he, he's, he's the best. Um, you know, he's absolutely fantastic. Um, and he's a little guy, so he, he's, he's just great. And he's so wonderful with his iron play. He gets it really great. So if you, if you like golf, and Luke Donald's a really cool guy. Like, if you like him, if you follow him on Twitter, you know, he's really into sports and his private jets and flying around and having fun and drinking beers and being just, you know, a good British guy. So, you know, I like watching uh, Luke Donald play a lot. Uh, Bubba Watson's playing really great. Nick Watney had a great start of the season, but ever since um, ever since he won in Doral, he's been completely backed up. I don't even think he's put together a good round since, or at least not a good tournament. And, um, you know, it, I, to me right now, it's uh, Luke, Donald, Mac, uh, Luke Donald and the rest of the field. Uh, this is something interesting. I was walking around Dick's the other day with my brother, and uh, he was looking at golf stuff. And he uses Pro V ones when he can afford them. What if if price wasn't an option? What balls would you hit? All right. Well, the number one thing that um, you know, the number one thing about balls is you <laughs> win. <laughs> but the, uh, I'm trying to get the name of the brand because I actually stopped and bought some today. And when when you buy golf balls. You have to buy for what what your game really entails. So if you're a good golfer and you're shooting like sub eighty five and really about iron play, you know you might want to get Pro V ones. I, I don't hit Pro V ones. I hit Callaway uh, HX Hot Plus, and because those are for added distance. Because I realize for me, if I can go off the tee and change myself from a two fifty average. 
to about a 265 average. That's a different, That's huge, different yeah. of a club. Huge. So Pro V1s aren't a distance ball. They're a field ball. So I went to this, uh, you know, this Callaway HX Hot Plus, and, I mean, I'm just bombing them now. And I know it sounds crazy like a commercial, but it's a noticeable difference. My friends have noticed it, which is wonderful. I mean, I'm out driving the majority of my friends now, which is great, and that brings me a lot more comfortable iron coming in. Is it hard to get a tee time in L.A.? It depends on where you want to play. Like, if you want to play, like, the municipals, you have to have a card, which costs $30 for a year to get. And then it's really tough to get because there's only about eight courses. But if you want to drive just out of L.A., about 45 minutes, uh, 30, 45 minutes, it's not that hard. And you can play some really wonderful courses. Cool. What's the coolest place you've ever played? The coolest place I ever played is, um, like, a, there's a really fun course right outside of Los Angeles in it town called Moore Park slash Simi Valley, which is called Rustic Canyon, and it's link-style golf. It's literally like playing the British Open, um, and it's built into this canyon, and it's just links. It's just a lot of fun and uh, really challenging. Uh, it could be really windy. The first time I played there, there were 35-mile-per-hour winds, and it sucked, but my friend got a hole-in-one, so that was cool. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I love playing there, and then we have a great municipal right here, uh, right on the other side of Beverly Hills called uh, Rancho Park, which is the most um, played municipal course in the country. And that's wonderful, too. I mean, because it's elevation changes, big greens, and it's well-maintained. How hard do you think, how hard is the hole-in-one is compared to some of the other difficult things like in sports, like, I don't know, saving a soccer penalty shot or bowling a 300 or hitting a hole-in-one or things like that? I think it's the hardest because it doesn't take skill. It's got it's a lot know, of luck involved, you, right? It's gotta, yeah, there's so much luck involved that if, if you roll a 300, you have to have skill and a level of muscle memory to really like just you know crush it and take advantage. Um, I forgot the other example, but the same thing for whatever. I, I totally forgot it, but the same thing. Like so- uh, saving a goal in soccer, a penalty yeah, kick? Sa- yeah. yeah, saving a goal is about guessing right and making sure you have the right angle and you know having a um, kind of having a... Uh, um, what you would call a uh, you know a scouring report on the player, but right, right. when you start talking about a hole in one, I mean, you can just see on how many great shots you know that don't go in the hole, like a near miss, getting it inside two feet is uh, incredible. But uh, to actually get it in that hole is uh, pretty pretty nutty. You know what's weird though about it is like I, I told you I went to play a, a par three course, and you know I'm a terrible golfer, but uh, you know, I just if you want to spend any time with if I want to spend any time with my brother, I have to find a way to like golf because it's all he does the whole time he's home for the summer. But mm. I was thinking, you know, I had 18 chances to a hole in one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And like a couple times, I wasn't that far off. I mean, I had a couple of birdies in the round. I mean, mm-hmm. I think maybe the shortest was like a 15, 15 yard putt, maybe. I, I was just 15 yards away. I mean, I think I four four putted that hole, but uh, <laughs> but uh, you know, like I don't know. I was just thinking, is this really that hard? I mean, I got eighteen shots at it here, but I, maybe that doesn't count if you're playing a par three. Well, course. those pros are such good ball strikers, and you know, just watch, you know, just watch it this weekend in, in the players where you know that that seventeenth uh, hole, which is very gimmicky, gets a lot of you know good good pub and bad pub. Um, the one on the island there. Yeah, yeah, but it's really simple. It's it's about 135 yards, you know, right into a green. It's not overly. I mean, it might be challenging for you and me, right. but we're not on the tour. That's where I put but, it in the water, just about 45 yeah. percent. So, and just see how many hole in ones there are there. Um, there won't be a lot. Right. Do you yeah. have any hole in ones? 
No, I uh, I don't. Um, I don't even have. As a matter of fact, I don't even have any close calls, which no. is frustrating. Does it drive I've you nuts like, one. when you Go see ahead? like a grandmother on TV that has like two of them for whatever fluke reason? <laughs> yeah, but um, that doesn't bother me because it's like I guess in golf you just kind of root for everybody. Yeah, yeah. Because um, it's so yeah. hard. Yeah, I mean, I would take breaking eighty over a hole in one any day. You know, a hole in one is great as something for the mantle. But, I mean, if you break 80, you know, I mean, you're driving home with your pants around your ankles. (laughs) Do you ever feel, have you ever holed out from, like, I don't know, 130 yards, something like that, and felt like, hey, that that actually counts as a hole in one? The longest shot I've ever made is about from 20 yards off the green. Um, So, no, I've never even holed out. Uh, um, So maybe I need to keep working a little bit. Uh, My buddy, Josh, Josh Gross, he's actually the um, MMA writer for ESPN. He uh, he and I were playing once this summer, uh, last summer, and he needed to uh, par 18 to break, uh, to shoot par for the course. He'd never done that before, and he put it was a par five, and he put his first shot in the trees, the second shot in the trees. <laughs> he, was, he, he was about 105 yards out, hitting his number th- uh, hitting his third shot, and he holed out. Wow! wow. <laughs> so, so he shot 70. I mean, it was uh, That's nasty. it was really exciting. That sounds so. You mentioned working. And that is something you do. We talked a lot about your having fun, but you do work, and you work at AccuScore. And just yesterday and today, I've been kind of just scrolling around, checking some things out. And one thing that I really love about AccuScore is the uh, team win forecasts mm-hmm. and the uh, percentages of teams. And this is a free thing on AccuScore, which is even cooler. But this is interesting. All right, so as of right now, AccuScore projects that in the National League, the Cardinals will win the Central, the Phillies mm-hmm. will win the East, the Rockies will win the West, although it's very, very close to, with the Giants. It's less than, less than one point. And you have the Braves as the wild card. Now, this is what's really strange to me. The Pittsburgh Pirates are 18-17, and 17, and they have a 0% chance of making the playoffs. Now, I don't doubt that they have, they're not going to make the playoffs, <laughs> but... If you look at the American League, the Chicago White Sox are 14-22, and 22, and they have a 0.3% chance. What, what's going on with this? How does this work? Explain this to me. What, how does it work? I'm, I'm curious yeah. about it in general. Well, the way we do it is we simulate a season. Every day we re-simulate the season 10,000 times. So, And then if you go to like Yahoo on Mondays, you can actually see uh, our playoff report where we actually – do an analysis on which teams benefited the most over the past seven days, okay. uh, which uh, and what their what their chances changed. So, if we take a look at like the Pittsburgh Pirates for say, which um, you know you know going in, they actually went from a zero point zero on May second to a zero point one. Oh, okay. He so, still says zero yeah, on so the website. There is, there, there, there is a shot. Lloyd Christmas <laughs> thinks that uh, the Pirates are alive. So you're saying there's a chance. <laughs> yeah, but in, in reality, if you take a look at the Pirates lineup and their pitching and what they have over the course of the remaining games, which they have, you know, a lot left. Lot I mean, left, yeah. still have over 130. That you know, baseball more often than not will eliminate the suckers just by the amount of uh, games that you play. And uh, you know, the Pirates, we only you know suggest that they're going to win 68 games. So we're saying 50 more games. They're going to go 1580 from for the rest of the, from the rest of the year. You know what's pretty awesome is your you, uh, AccuScore loves the Indians. Uh, they're off to a great start, obviously twenty-two and eleven, but they're at an eighty-eight point three percent playoff probability. That would be awesome. 
Also, AccuScore also loves the Angels. Uh, they only have a, a two percent or two game lead right now over the Rangers, but they're eighty nine percent to win the division, and the Rangers are eight percent. So AccuScore loves the Angels, loves the Indians in the American League, loves the Phillies. The Phillies have the highest probability to make the playoffs in the entire league. But this is so cool; it's so fun to look at. You know, what I mean, so it's yeah. And so what's great too is like look at the difference between always to see the teams that we really love. Is I mean, sometimes you just have to take a look at what a team's record is, you know, who they're going to be playing. So if you take a look at the West, you know, the Angels, uh, they only have to beat. Right. We don't think Oakland teams. is a legitimate contender, and Seattle certainly isn't, even though they're all kind of bunched in there. So they're only going to have to beat the Rangers. Well, we think that the Angels have a better lineup than the Rangers, and they already have a two-game lead. Right. You know, already up two games in the loss column. So that's significant. So if you take a look at the Indians, I mean, they're 84.5% to win their division, but only 883 to make the playoffs, which is obviously an increase. But we're basically saying that they do not have a legitimate shot at the wild card. So if you take a look at the Yankees, for instance, then you can go down to the East. Right. The Yankees are about 34% to win the division, but 69.7% right. to make the playoffs. So I would say we're really kind of keen on the Yankees being a, a, a great team where we're saying the Indians and Angels are probably going to be married to uh, their division. Right, right. Yeah, that, that's a super cool feature, and it, it's, I'm pretty sure it's available for all the sports you cover, right? I mean, most of them are either in the playoffs right now or in the offseason. It's almost time where it's just going to be baseball. But you mentioned a little bit ago that the Lakers did a good job disgracing the Lakers, the Dodgers are certainly doing a good job disgracing the Dodgers. What is going on out there with the Dodgers? Well, it's you know, it's a great day to be. It's a great time to be in LA sports. We still don't have a football team. <laughs> Dodger Stadium is uh, apparently a place where you go to get your skull cracked yeah. an inch, inch of your life. The Lakers are done. Um, you know the Kings. You know, I guess the Kings play hockey out here. <laughs> uh, yeah, the you know, I don't know the Dodgers. You know, people never like Frank McCourt. And the Dodgers are a staple of this town, and yeah. you know, base, I mean, just like most baseball teams are a staple of any town, it's father and sons. I mean, you you grow up on it. So I'm not interested in going to Dodger Stadium because I'm not interested in paying for the divorce. You know, 33 percent increase in parking, and Dodger Stadium is one of those stadiums where you could only park in their parking lot the way it's set up. Okay. You know, there's no like city parking when you just walk to the stadium like there is for the Staples Center or like other arenas. You, if you go to Dodger Stadium, you have to pay for parking over there the way the way it's set up. So you know, they what does that cost parking, roughly? Yeah, they change parking from ten dollars to fifteen dollars. Uh. Uh, it's not safe. Food's really expensive, and the product is crap. Right. And you know, I just think that you know people just are tired. You know, it's you know life isn't cheap anymore. <laughs> life, you know, life is expensive and. You know, to go to the ball game to see a hundred dollars and get price gouge. You know, spend a hundred dollars, get price gouge, and see. You know, pay for people's divorce for people who have publicly disclosed through the divorce that their plan is to put a crappy product on the team and charge you more for it. Right. Is uh, I don't know. That's just no fun. Yeah, that's terrible. Did you enjoy the Ethier run there at all? A little bit? Did that get you excited at all about the Dodgers? Or just there's just nothing that could happen. Maybe for maybe for Ethier because you know he seems like a, a good, good guy, dude, but. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, uh, I wasn't like, you know, walking around the house like Dennis Hopper at the end of the Hoosiers. <laughs> what else is going <laughs> Again, on? Again, I, I think I'm just an apathetic person right now. You are, you are. You're a little, you're a little grouchy today, Zach. <laughs> not, not, but, but not towards you. No, 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 no. I feel the love coming this way, but I, I just feel like you're a little... 
towards sports, maybe. You're, you're a little disgruntled as a sports fan right now, and I'm sure the Lakers have a big part of that. And Like we said, the Dodgers and the Kings are out, and the Kings had a great chance to win round one. I don't know how much you watched of it, but they blew a 4 nothing lead that would have basically put them in the driver's seat to win that series, so that's got to be frustrating. So what else is going on at AccuScore right now? It, it's getting to the point where it's only baseball season, so... Do you really yeah, focus it on baseball, or is that is, is it? It's a tough time. Is it? Is it? It's a, It's not. I wouldn't say a tough time in the fact that it's like you know we're not tough, but it's like when you deal with a website that you know sells gambling packages, trying to condition people to understand that you know baseball is an investment opportunity right. is, so is very challenging. Um, there, you know, baseball is a less exciting game than basketball is, or you know, even hockey. But people don't, you know, hockey doesn't have a critical mass. Unfortunately, I've watched all the hockey class, and I've actually enjoyed it. Um, so, yeah, it, it, we get into a point where it's about servicing baseball and uh, reaching out to our clients, seeing what we can do to make things better, and then also, uh, you know, beginning our plans for uh, football season and how we're going to uh, make sure that we have a uh, proficient and good. Uh, Fall, fall, uh, I was just going to ask you about products. football. When do you guys? When does the first playoff projection come up? Is it not until after week one, or do you do a a playoff projection in the preseason at all? I think now. I think as soon as the schedules came out, we're able to do it. Um, let me take a look. Because right quick. now everything's a hundred or zero, depending on yeah. whether or not they yeah. made it. Yeah, yeah, right now because that's that's based on last year. But right. we'll start putting out uh, football probably in late June. Okay. Uh, just to start wetting people. So not that appetite. long ago. Yeah, not that long. Not that long from now. We're getting there. Yeah. Yeah. We're so there. and that that'll be a lot of fun. I mean, I'm excited for football. I'm I'm apathetic now, but if you take a look at like what the headlines are, I'm just you know I don't want to indulge all the conversations about lockouts and. Am I on the owner's side or the player's side? I just don't care. They don't care about me. I don't care. I want to make sure that I'm employed and that nothing <laughs> bad happens to our company, uh, you know, because um, Cause they, they don't want to play, right? Together. They can't sort it out. Yeah, that's ridiculous. I can't believe it's gone this long, and I, I'm the same way. I don't, I don't think we've spent more than two. We have Jason Lockner four on tonight. I don't think I'm going to ask him one question about the lockout. I just don't care about it. It's just it's ridiculous. Figure it out. Mm-hmm. I did enjoy the draft, though. Did you watch the draft at all? Any any thoughts there? Yeah, I, I I thought the Titans are amazing. It never ceases to amaze me. Like you think these people who are GMs are smart, right? And they get it. And, and <laughs> you know, you, Vince Young was winning sixty percent of his games, and he was a mess. But I mean, but he was their mess, right? And they got rid of him for Jake Locker. I mean, I, I said that and in the, the second round they're going to draft mortgage-backed securities. <laughs> Why didn't they just move back if they wanted Jake Locker? No one was going to take him any earlier than so much, 20, I right? I think that there's so much like feeling that you have to get it on with these, you know, you have to make sense of your picks and I didn't think it was a particularly strong draft. Um uh, I don't think Cam Newton's going to be successful in the NFL. Um so did you, you see know, those all John Gruden things? These, not to interrupt you, but did you see yeah, that with yeah, the quarterback? Yeah, thirty six, right? Yeah, whatever they call them. Yeah, I, th- I just Newton didn't impress me at all. He just seemed like a punk. I don't know. I, I don't like Newton either. I'm not a fan either. I wouldn't have, wouldn't have dreamed of drafting him 
at the, with paying them for So then million. you can start thinking about second rounders. I mean, you know, Carolina's not exactly smart. They they got Jimmy Clausen last year in the second round. And uh, I mean, are you really saying that Christian Ponder's your guy up in Minnesota? I mean, this is just terrible. You should have traded these picks and just acquired more draft picks. Right. Yeah, I agree. But uh, I'm really pretty pumped up about uh, DeMarco Murray landing in a very crowded backfield. The poor guy might not get a carry. <laughs> it's all and, right. At least he won't. That means he won't break in any tackles, so that'll be all right. <laughs> be right up his alley. We're never going to agree on DeMarco Murray. He's the all-time leading touchdown scorer. I know he was there forever, but <laughs> still, no one else has ever scored as many touchdowns as him in the history of Oklahoma football. You have That's no love for this guy. Backfield with anybody? He shared it with Chris Brown, who was a very good running back. Chris Brown, dude. Should Come I on. should I know who DeMarco Murray is? Yeah, DeMarco. No, you're better. You're better for it. <laughs> DeMarco Murray. DeMarco Murray is a dog with fleas who polluted the Oklahoma running back backfield with padded stats and the inability to break a tackle in space. He sure knows how to hurdle people on the ground, if you recall his long touchdown run against Texas. Basically and that's the problem with him, game, is he set an unrealistic expectation that he was going to be good. <laughs> he was good. He scored over 60 touchdowns at Oklahoma. What, could, what more yeah. could you want from the guy? Hey, you know who hated getting injured and missing big games was DeMarco Murray. <laughs> You know, my second favorite Oklahoma Sooner is Malcolm Kelly. You probably have nothing nice to say about him either, do you? I have nothing but the nicest things to say about Malcolm Kelly. He uh, is right. fantastic. So we can agree on I Malcolm loved, Kelly. I loved Malcolm Kelly. I just look. I, I think it's not that I don't like Demarco Murray, but take a look at what's been in the Oklahoma backfield in the last ten years: Quinton Griffin, All Hart, yeah. Adrian Peterson. You know, the gold standard. Right. He's Demarco the Murray seller. had every reason to think that he was going to be better than all those guys, and he just, you know. He would just get hurt. If he would have played against Florida, we probably would have beat them. No doubt. And this guy got got hurt. Couldn't make it. Couldn't break it. T- How many times did Demarco Murray what have? What is he back there returning kicks anyway. yards? What is what was he doing back there returning that kick in the Big Twelve Championship game? That game was not close, and they put him out there returning kicks, and mm-hmm. he got injured. That's not Demarco Murray's fault. That's big big game Bob. It's just stupidity. And he got injured on the first game, first play of the game. Yeah, well, you know, he shouldn't have been returning kicks. He should have been. It was cl- it was cold that night. <laughs> I don't know what that means. <laughs> but Malcolm Kelly is a great rapper. How about that? Hey, he laid it down, right? Yeah, that guy can flow. And I heard that that you know Fred Smoot really took him under his wing because they like to rap together. And I don't understand Malcolm why. Kelly? Yeah, Malcolm Kelly and he Fred. He needs a wide receiver to take him under his belt so he can have a job. <laughs> yeah, he's he's not. He hasn't done very well. He, he Very thought, shocked that he was a bust. Very shocked that he was a bust. So am I, because the Bills were thinking about taking him in the first round before that disaster of a pro day he had. And I was telling everyone, oh, you're going to love Malcolm Kelly. He's going to be great. He's, he can catch. He, he's strong. He's tall. Oh, I love him. I love everything about Malcolm Kelly. That was the same draft they held out for J.J. Uh, Hardy, though, wasn't it? They took J.J. Hardy yeah, as, that was a good instead. Move. Yeah, that yeah, didn't but... work out. <laughs> but, you know, the Redskins that year, they picked... Malcolm Kelly, Devin Thomas, and a tight end whose name is Fred Davis, I believe, and all three of them stunk. So I don't yeah, know. that's why the Redskins were in the playoffs the last few years, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I don't hey, know. They beat the Cowboys on Monday night. That was big in my suicide pool. Was that when Santana Moss had the two touchdowns over our boy Roy Williams in about thirty seconds to go from winning the game to losing the game? That was a dark. No, uh, I'm talking about at the end of this uh, this past season. I was in the oh, suicide okay. pool, and everybody had Dallas in the opening week, and. And Dallas, you know, didn't win. And I remember being very happy. Yeah, that, that, was, that was glorious. I, I was in a suicide pool that had about 75 people in it at the end. 
Suicide mm-hmm. pools suddenly have gotten really easy the last two years because it seems like every year there's like 10 really, really bad teams that you can just count on losing. Well, you got to get in mind the one I, I'm in. It's, uh, I think there's about 150 people, and it's $100 to get in. And, you know, they pay out a lot of money. So it's a, it's, it's a very fun suicide pool. Did you win? And I, I've cashed in it uh, two years, three years ago. I cashed in it. I got third place, and I won a grand. Nice. Oh, nice. That's sweet. Yeah, that, that, was, that was a lot of fun. But, uh, it, yeah, it's, to me, that's the funnest. Cause I don't have an NFL team. Uh, I just like to bet the NFL, and the suicide pool is great. But, you know, I grew up on the Raiders, and when they left, it's just I, I couldn't get with them in Oakland. Do you follow, I, the, follow the Sooners? Like, do you watch Minnesota more because of Adrian or maybe take an interest in St. Louis now that Bradford's yeah, there? Or? Yeah, I mean, I love, I love Sam. I mean, I definitely pull for those guys. Right. Um, but I'm not like I don't have Rams gear, and uh, I'm not a Vikings fan. Um, but I definitely love watching those guys play. And I, I always want to see like Oklahoma guys do well. And believe it or not, I always want to see Oklahoma State guys do well too. Really? Because I feel I mean they usually are a product of Oklahoma high school football. True. And you know you you kick their ass throughout their their college experience, so you want to see them uh, do well in the pros. Yeah. Speaking of a product of Oklahoma football, we were, or Oklahoma high school football, and we were talking about wide receivers, how sweet is Ryan Broyles? I love Ryan Broyles. Oh, I mean, he, I remember sick. him when he uh, first got thrown off the team for stealing gas in his freshman year. <laughs> <laughs> you had to bring that up, huh? It's no and everybody said, thing. this guy's going to be better than Mark Clayton. I was like, man, that's such a bold statement, because Mark Clayton was so good. Yeah, yeah. Mark Clayton was a hard worker, because when he got there, Oklahoma was so deep at wide receiver, and he was this little kid from Arlington. Right. So I was like, how are you going to say that Ryan Broyles is going to be better than a hard-working, fast guy? But he really is. And I'll tell you who also I love is Travis Lewis. Oh, yeah, sick. Very sick. Linebacker? Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh, just very good. Tough, very good. Tough and gets it. Yeah, very good. Yeah, we can agree so, I mean, on those players, I suppose. Yeah, these guys are so much better than the bums who were there when I was in college. Man, when we were there, we sucked so bad. We rushed the field because we beat Syracuse when Syracuse was 24th in the country and Doc with Donovan <laughs> McNabb. That's funny. I told you when my buddy played there, uh, he, every day after practice his freshman year, he had to teach two linemen how to read, literally how to read. He, he would teach them cat in the hat every day. It was his job. Two big, two big fat linemen, and he spent his two year, He played two years there. He backed up Jason Bowser both years. And then he came. My junior year, we got we gave up uh, three ninety nine yard plays. <laughs> nice, <laughs> that's a, that's tough to do. All right, before we let Texas, you go, Texas, Tulsa, Texas, Ooh, Tulsa, and Kansas all broke ninety nine yarders against OU. Ouch! What 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 AccuScore? Let's plug it real quick. What's going on? What can we look for before we let you go? Well, right now, again, I said earlier that, uh, you know, baseball season is something that a lot of people don't really spend a lot of time thinking about from a gambler's point of view. But, you know, baseball is a great product for us. We're running really well this year in baseball. Uh, our four-star picks that are for the money line, you know, picking winners that are rated four-star picks in the last seven days have hit 63%. Our three-star picks have hit 65%. Mm. Over-unders for our three-star selections in the last month are 57%. And our value picks where we're able to assign whether you have an undervalued favorite over, or, or pardon me, an undervalued underdog over overvalued favorite are hitting at 55%, returning 22 times your unit 
since the start of the year. So if you want to, uh, if you want to join AccuScore um, through this podcast, just email me at support at AccuScore.com, and we'll work out a deal based on our pricing points. And uh, you know, try to condition you to understand uh, how baseball could be profitable. One last question I forgot to ask you. Did you listen to our boy Dave's new podcast? What did you think? And have you had an invitation yet to be on said podcast? I am holding out on listening to Damashek's podcast until I get an invite. Okay. <laughs> At that point, I will inform myself. Other than that, I've only sent him well wishes uh, and tell him congratulations because Dave is uh, the most gracious guy that I've ever come across in this industry, and he's uh, also probably the most talented guy as well. Yeah, he's the man. All right, Zach Rosenfield, thank you very much for joining us again. Find him on Twitter. He is at AccuScoreZach. Is that correct? That, that, is that, that, that is it. That is it. AccuScoreZach, Z-A-C-H, or you can just follow AccuScore at uh, .com slash AccuScore. All right, buddy. We'll talk to you soon. As well. Thank okay, you. Later. All right, the sportscasters are back for one last segment. That is pick four. Don, if I could, I would crawl up in a ball and hide in a hole right now. Yeah, yeah, it wasn't, wasn't pretty. <laughs> we had an absolutely horrendous week of pick four last week, each going one and three. Uh, Don uh, won the – we actually both won the game of the week, Boston over Philly, five to one. We both got that one right. But from there, it was a big disaster. Don lost Washington over Tampa Bay in a game that was never played. <laughs> uh, and I decided that since he had picked the team that lost the series, I'd give him a loss. If he would have picked the team that won the series, would have gave him a win. But it didn't happen that way. So that's a loss. He also picked Detroit to beat San Jose in a game that they lost 4-3 to three in overtime. Tough luck there. And he predicted that Washington would either be tied or leading their series by this podcast. They're actually not in the playoffs anymore. I guess I Washington and Detroit, so I was way off. Yeah. The Canucks over the Predators. I had the Predators. Didn't work out. Four to two. I predicted that there would be three sweeps. Of course, there had to be two sweeps. Yeah, that was close. And I tried to predict that the Phillies would beat the Braves. Unfortunately, or fortunately, because I am a Braves fan, the Braves did win that game 5-2. <laughs> to two. And it's funny because they had a three-game series. They played Cole Hamels and Cliff Lee in two of the games. The first game, Cliff Lee had 16 strikeouts. The Braves won. Yeah. Then the third game that Cole Hamels played, we won. And in the middle, the, the Phillies threw someone I never heard of, and that's the game the Phillies won. So that shows you how weird baseball is. A couple things before we get to this week's picks. We want to thank... Wes Bunting, Zach Rosenfield, our mothers, and Jason Lacknafora for appearing on the show today. Uh, it was a ball to have all of you. Next week is episode number 20. For right now, I can confirm that Dave Damashek will be on the show. And I can also tell you that I'm working on a couple of other things very big. I'm not ready to jinx yet, so it will be a great show for number 20. Also, make sure you find us on Twitter. We are twitter.com slash sports underscore casters or just simply at sports underscore casters. Don is at Don Lake Sports, and I am at Diversity23. Also, don't forget to check out our buddy Josh, who we mentioned is running the race for his father, and his Twitter is at BuffaloJC34. So make sure you check that out if you are interested in donating some money to the Kindy Foundation. Also, check out our blogs, 
thesportscasters.blogspot.com. And also we are on Facebook, facebook.com slash thesportscasters. And in the next couple of weeks or so, Don and I are going to be working really hard on the website, um, adding some new features, including some stuff that will be exclusive to the website and uh, getting our new logo up there, changing the colors around, just really trying to make it look very nice. So check that out. It is www.sports-casters.com. Yeah, and all that stuff you mentioned about contacting us and finding us in different places, it's all on the website too. Yep, and you can email us at thesportscasters at gmail.com. So Donnie, why don't you start us off with pick four? The game of the week uh, is Red Sox-Yankees in New York. Saturday we're going to take that game. Beckett-Sabathia. Uh, I will go with the Yankees and CC Sabathia at home. I'm also going to take the Yankees. Uh, last time that these two clubs met at Fenway, the Red Sox took two out of three. I kind of figure that the Yankees should be able to take two out of three at home. I just hope that the game that they lose isn't the one pitched by their ace. So I will take the Yankees <laughs> as well. Uh, my host choice game is a game tonight. It should be up. The game should start around the time or a little bit after this podcast, or a little before this podcast comes out. But it will be San Jose at Detroit. I'm going to take Detroit to win at home and take it to a game seven. All right, my host choice. I'm going to go with the Pittsburgh Pirates, Donnie. I'm pumped about this one. <laughs> nice. I'm going to take the Pirates over the Dodgers. The Pirates we talked a little bit about with Zach. They're 18 and 17 as I speak right now. They have no chance of making the playoffs. With 0.0 <laughs> chance of making the playoffs, according to AccuScore, for whatever reason. Those evil computers. But the game is Thursday at 7.05. The Pirates are throwing Charlie Morton, who is 4-1. And, one. and uh, the mess that is the Los Angeles Dodgers will be throwing John Garland. And I will pick the Pirates to win that game in beautiful PNC Park. All right. Tomorrow night, 9.30, uh, for my worldwide leader pick, is Memphis at Oklahoma City. I think I've won picking Oklahoma City one or two times before, so... Yeah, my that back, Durant fella. My basketball expertise, I'm going to stay with Oklahoma City. Who are they playing? Vancouver? Memphis. Vancouver Grizzlies? <laughs> yes. Okay. All right. My uh, worldwide leader pick is another basketball game. I'm going to take the Miami Heat to finish off the Boston Celtics here in five games. That game is tomorrow in Miami or Wednesday at 7 o'clock on TNT. And uh, I just think that Miami just – it's done. They got them. They got Boston. The series is over. They got to be the favorite now, too, probably, right? Probably. As much as yeah, it's fun probably. to hate Yeah, they're probably the favorite. You know, I would love to see Dallas for our boy JT Brawley and, of course, Mark Cuban, who I love. Yeah, he's a fun guy. Uh, my bold prediction this week is kind of uh, the half of the bold prediction that I had that's still kind of working from last week. I'm going to say Detroit wins the series over San Jose. So that's two games in a row they're going to have to win tonight. Actually, and, four. Well, right. But... Uh, to finish it off, it'll be the next two. And I'm going to say that when they do it, they're also going to gonna win game seven by three or more goals. Hmm. Uh, San Jose has struggled to put teams away. I think they're showing a little bit of signs of what they've lacked in the past and that mental toughness. And uh, prove it to me. And until they do, I'm, I don't trust them in a game seven with their backs to the wall. You know, I always say this, and I guess it's less and less – uh, hard. It's more and more hard to believe as uh, we overlap like this, but we don't pick these together. And uh, I also pick that Detroit will make history and come back from an O to three deficit to beat the Sharks. And since Daddy, since said Daddy, since Donnie, <laughs> who's not my daddy, I'm his daddy. Uh, since he added something onto that pick, I will also say that one of the two games will be overtime. Sounds good. 
All right, so that is it for today. We'll be back next week with episode number 20 and the great Dave Damashek. Until then, cue the hip, and we're out. <laughs>